Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Bushby and Thompson's Wrestling Adventure on postwrestling.com and I'm your host Martin Bushby and joining me as always is the main man himself, the youngest in charge, double underscore Andrew Thompson. Andrew, how are you this month, mate? What's going on, Martin? It's a, it's a ple- pleasure to be here with you again, my brother. How you feeling? Feeling good, mate. Definitely for this month because we're going to be going back to 1999 and one of the most popular documentaries in wrestling beyond the mat and joining us this month is owner of revolution pro wrestling andy quilden andy thanks for joining us this month no problem i heard the words beyond the mat and i had to be involved <laughs> yeah it's certainly a, a classic documentary um, might be um, a bit confusing good job we've got an andy and an andrew because otherwise that might get a bit confusing but um well i am getting confused as well by the way because i am called andrew when i get told off so uh, <laughs> yeah, i'm on the edge of my seat <laughs> No telling off on this podcast for sure. But um, before we got into the documentary, obviously, um, Red Pro gearing up for your return to live shows this summer. How's that uh, going for you so far? Uh, it feels quite surreal in the sense that uh, the finish line, or there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel, um, the finish line's in sight, um, and I hope we can remember how to run live shows. Um, I think that um, tickets are going as well as we kind of expected, Um and I'm confident that once we start announcing matches um, and people see, you know, what we've got lined up for them, um, it's the excitement's going to be there. Um, and I feel that, you know, we've seen some of these live sports come back. Um, you know, we saw we've seen some fans at the football. Um, we've seen fans at the UFC. And just the difference that having fans makes is just unbelievable. And I just can't wait to kind of get back at it and get back to it. Um, obviously, there's a lot of logistical things we're working through at the moment, um, and uh, and even little things like a, you know, like our vans batteries are flat as pancakes, are filthy dirty. Um, we're gonna have to put put the you know put all the rings up and test them, make sure they're all still good to go. Uh, I'm sure that there's quite literally going to be some ring rust on some of them, um, but uh, you know it's going to be a. I think it's going to it's 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 almost like nothing happened. The last year has been so slow. And then all of a sudden, we're, we're kind of here, we're facing the reality of perhaps we're actually going to be able to do this. And now everything's just going 100 miles an hour. But it's, uh, it's fun to be busy for a change and great to have something, something else to focus on other than the news. Yeah, definitely. Because as well as the homegrown talent, um, you recently announced that Shota Umino is coming over for, uh, for the summer as well, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's going to be making his return. That was a, perhaps the the most uh, asked question um, <laughs> that I've had is what's happening with Shota Umino? What's happening with Shota Umino? Uh, of course, he went back to Japan at the very start of the pandemic. That was one of my first hurdles I had to uh, to jump over at the start of the pandemic, how to book someone a flight back to Japan um, when the flights were just selling out. You'd enter in the information. It'd be sold out in the click of a button. Um, you know, you'd enter in your payment information and you press process and someone else has entered it in quicker. Um, so it's again, the guys back to Japan, of course, Great Okan and Shota back to Japan and uh, Hikaleu back to America. That was a that was quite a task on the first, you know, just the first few days of the pandemic. Um, but yeah, we got it done. And now I'm happy to say we're bringing him back. So, um, so yeah, I think he's going to be a great addition to shows. Um, he's, uh, he's my type of wrestler, Shota, um, and I think he's going to, you know, add a, add a bit of depth to our shows. Um, and uh, 
he's not going to be the only international talent we use. There's going to be some more. Um, you know, there's, there'll be a, at least one more longer term uh, international talent and uh, and a few short term Ameri- uh, you know international talents. Um, so we'll uh, it's, it's, the shows are going to be as diverse as ever. Um, I think we've got all our COVID protocols down um, and just looking forward. Like I say, I can't say enough. I'm just looking forward to getting back to it. I say, Andy, I want to ask you, you know, with you being one of the more uh, uh, prominent promoters in the UK, you know, being a black man at that, like, and, and there aren't that many, there aren't that many, like, black independent promoters that have a, a, a promotion with the, the name value of one such as Rare Pro. Like, how, how important is it to you to uh, sort of, like, uh, try, try to bring more black talents in uh, to, to Rare Pro to sort of further diversify your roster? Uh, like, I remember even, um, I say, I say, I think it was last May, I interviewed Michael Loku and he talked to me about how you you helped him sort of feel more comfortable in his skin and make him uh, just just make, just just help him be himself on, on screen and, and just really help him along the way. So how important is it to you to you know further diversify your roster and, and, and add more black talents um, to, to to the rare pro culture? Um, so I I feel I don't I mean I'm not sure if this is if it's different for me because I because of being a person of color myself um, I don't feel any pressure to have uh, a quota of of people of color, of people of, um, you know, a certain sex or, you know, a sexual orientation. I, I feel I, I really don't feel I have any pressure to, um, to have that representation there. But what I do have the pressure to do is use people based upon their ability. And I feel like with Michael, as an example, I think that the thing with Michael was he, it was about not playing to a stereotype. It was about being yourself. You know, and I think that wrestling is one of these uh, these genres and uh, and forms of entertainment that has it's just been so guilty over the years of um, of stereotypes and has been so which it, I get because you know people call wrestling theatre its simplest form so essentially it's a dumbed down version of theatre so I get that sometimes you are going to play to stereotypes but as the world has kind of progressed and evolved. Um, professional wrestling in many aspects hasn't so um you know i think it's just important to allow people to put, to be themselves to portray themselves and use people based upon merit um and you know you hear all the time like oh i don't look at skin color i don't look at whatever you know you, you hear that all the time but i think that you know the reality is that it's not like that you know and i feel like a lot of people sometimes you know they they have for lack of a better term a token black guy on the show and I feel that that mm-hmm. is what needs to be moved away from. You know, I feel like I use the term over and over again. At the end of the day, we're all human beings. Um, and uh, and that's the way we should all be treated as human beings. And I feel like, you know, the it shouldn't matter what you are. Cream always rises to the top. And I think that that's always been my mindset. Because I don't think it does any good um, for the culture if you're just putting people of color onto your roster just to fit that quota, just to say I'm an ally, just to say I'm a supporter, etc. Um, so that's my mentality. That's my mindset on it. Um, and, and, you know, and just treat everyone equally. And when they're here, use them as who they are, you know, don't throw them in as stereotypes. And, mm-hmm. and I feel that that's, uh, and like I say, I feel like I don't have as much pressure on myself uh, like as some other promoters being a person of color um i feel like i you know i don't have to justify my decisions as to who i'm using um and i i feel like perhaps i don't have people look at the roster and say well 
you know, how diverse is your roster, etc. Because people know I am a black promoter. Um, mm. But, um, you know, what I will say is every single individual who's involved in my show is there because of merit and they can know they're there because of merit. Because I can only say, you know, how bad must it feel if, you know, you're having to second guess your reason for being on a show, you know, right. and, uh, and that's always been my mentality to try and move away from that. I say one, one, one thing I did want to, uh, I actually wanted to get both of you guys opinions, uh, th thoughts on this, uh, yesterday we're, we're recording this on the 26th and, um, yesterday, the 25th was the one year anniversary of George Floyd's passing, uh, just, just from you guys being, being in the UK, uh, Andy, I want to go to you first. Like, how, how did you recall like the media, um, covering the story and, you know, fast forward to where we are now, uh, of course, Derek Chauvin is, 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 is going to jail and being put away. Like, I guess it can be, you know, referred to and just to, to refer to as justice in some ways, but at the end of the day, a man still lost his life. Uh, fa fast forward to where we are right now. Uh, just your overall thoughts about everything and, and how do you think things have maybe progressed and in, in some sort of ways, may, maybe stay stagnant, uh, as, as far as, as far as race goes and, uh, for, for what you've seen in America and, and, uh, and where you are right now in the UK. You know, I feel like it's, uh, I mean, in many ways, last year, the coverage was quite harrowing. Uh, and I think it drew a lot of attention um, to, uh, to, I guess, race relations in our country. And, it, it, you know, although it happens in America, it caused a lot of people to look inwardly to our country in the UK. Um, obviously, it was huge headline news. I say that anything that happened um, throughout the pandemic era of our lives um, really got magnified to a greater extent uh, than it would have done otherwise because first of all people wanted something to focus on which wasn't the pandemic and second of all people just sat home doing nothing so it meant that they had a lot of time to be able to reflect um, a lot of time you know there wasn't a lot of other news um, which was dictating um, you know column inches so it really was a focal point over here um, and I think um, the reactions were so interesting. Um, I think that's uh, the best way to term it, because I think that you got a lot of the usual, I'm not racist, I've got black friends lines. Right. Um, you had a lot of um, people who were arguing all lives matter, um, yeah. you know, and, and, and I, get, I get that, you know, the, the whole sentiment behind what I told you in my first answer is all lives matter. You know, everyone's human. I get that. I get that argument, but, you know, I, how can you, you know, we as a society, when one particular part of our society is in trouble, we rally around that part of society. We don't, um, you know, we don't, uh, we don't say, well, we are looking after this part of society, but actually we're looking after everyone because ev all lives matter. You know, it was kind of, it was just insane the way that I don't think that a lot of people were able to grasp that fact. Um, and I'm sure it was a vocal minority, but it, it was crazy. Um, and for me, from a personal perspective, it was uh, a real eye-opener and a real great period of self-reflection for myself as a black man and what I could personally uh, be doing to... Um, I don't want to say to, to fight the cause, but, you know, to I feel like I've kept quiet a lot. And I feel like um, there's been times whereby I've experienced racism and I've just kind of shrugged my shoulders and put it down to ignorance. Because ignorance 
really doesn't bother me, but it should do, you know, because I think that was the time when I moved from ignoring it, shrugging my shoulders to ignorance, to moving towards education, to saying that we need to educate everyone. You know, I'm not aware of all of black history. You know, I found out during that period is when I found out about Black Wall Street, which I'd never knew anything about. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and, uh, you know, there's so many parts of history um, that we ignore. And I feel like if you respect those parts of history, that is what teaches us. And that's what teaches society and starts to eradicate this stuff. Um, and I think it's a gradual process. But, you know, I feel like I could do my part in educating as well. Um, as well as learning myself, I could be educating people myself by letting people know my experiences. You know, I think that not many people can understand the, the feeling of going into a shop and being followed because it's assumed that you're shoplifting. You know, not and, and, I, and I feel like, you know, I experience that on a regular basis and I, and I have that paranoia of that happening on a regular basis. I have, since I was a child, I've had it, ingrained in me that I'm scared of the police when really I should be looking at the police and saying the police are there to protect me and I feel that I've always been someone if you were to say to me have you encountered racism I would have always said "Mm, not really I think I've been lucky but then I look back and I have and I feel like all of that stuff with George Floyd brought that to the surface. It enabled that period of self-reflection. It also showed a lot of people in their true light because it was amazing the amount of people who, I, I understand people feel uncomfortable talking about it. I get that because it's a very sensitive topic and no one wants to say the wrong thing. But to me, when I go in it with my open mind and looking at logic and, and you know, this education, like I'd rather you say the wrong thing and we can help educate you to say the right thing, you know, but I think that a lot of people shy away from the topic and I think a lot of people just don't want any part of the topic whatsoever because they're so adamant that A, they're not racist and B, that society's not racist, that they just want to wash their hands of everything, you know, and I think that, you know, that's wrong because you have to listen, you have to listen and you have to learn. Um, And I think that, you know, this year, um, obviously with it being the one year anniversary, I don't feel that it's... um, it was in the news in the UK, but I don't think it was in the news as much as it mm. could be, as it should be. Um, and that's perhaps a, a sign of society just getting on with it. Being, yeah. You know, it's, it's time, one of those things they say, like, time's a great healer, you know. And that's, uh, you know, it's not, a, it's not a, as a raw subject as it was a year ago because people have just become almost numb to it, I think. Um, you know, and I guess just as a side note as well, like all this stuff with sports, you know, I've just never understood. You know, it's just craziness. You know, you see footballers getting racially abused and you see, um, you know, people taking a knee and suddenly taking a knee is such a huge deal, you know, to, to a lot of people. It's like, why is it such a huge deal? It's a sign of solidarity. Um, and, you know, the fact that football players are still getting racially abused and social media aren't doing anything about it. That is also uh, just, it shows you that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And it's, it's a big issue. It really is. Um, and I, it's, it's just horrible that it took something as horrific as George Floyd's murder to shine a light on 
such a prevalent topic in our society. Um, but it did. Um, and all I can say is I hope that, you know, even if it doesn't do its job in terms of helping everyone understand and making everyone accepting, even if it just makes a, a minority of people change their attitudes and change their mindfulness, then I think that uh, this massive negative can be used as a positive. And like I say, for myself, I've tried to use it as a positive. I've tried to talk more openly and I've tried to not, uh, not hide from who I am in many mm. ways. Yeah, you, you, I, I, that, something that you said like really, really stood out is that it's, it sparked a conversation uh, that a lot of people were very uncomfortable at having and even uh, something you alluded to, the All Lives Matter thing. Like my, my only issue with that is that I think people, uh, like we, 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 could call it, we could call it straight. I think when I see like white people respond to that or, or they use that phrase, they, they, they take it as like, they, they use it as a sign of like, it, it's like a defense mechanism type thing. Yeah. Like they try to push that out. And, and it's, it's not, I don't think any black person, when we say Black Lives Matter, it's not saying nobody else life matter regardless of your race or, or, or ethnicity or background. I don't think anybody saying, I don't think any black person saying that. It's just the fact that we constantly see ourselves uh, in these videos on social media and, pe and people don't, and be, being harmed by the police, being, having our lives taken by the police. And I don't think people understand how traumatizing it is. Like I've, even myself, I've noticed that I've become very like um, insensitive to to death. And, and, and it's like, and, and, not, and not in a way where, when I say it's sensitive, I don't mean like uh, disrespectful to it. I mean, as far as like, it it takes a minute for me to feel. You, you you get what I'm saying? It takes a me. It takes a it takes a minute for me to like truly let that I guess emotion out or get that emotion inside of me in a minute because I've seen it so much and it's it it, it really it really is traumatizing yeah. in a way. And, and and I feel that the George Floyd stuff that was um that was what gave you that moment of step back self reflection. Wow, you know. Because I don't feel like to me, I'm speaking for myself, obviously, but for me, stuff like that, it was just taken for granted. And I never even I never even had a time, a chance to kind of analyze why I felt certain ways about things and, you know, why I was so numb and, and desensitized to all of this stuff. I never, mm. ever took that moment to think about it. And then with obviously with the George Floyd stuff and at that time with being in lockdown, having all that time to think about it, you know, that's that's when it all came hitting home to me. Yeah, and, and it, it seemed like my, my, I would call my first time experiencing like or, or seeing uh, something along those lines was uh, probably back when, uh, when, when Trayvon Martin passed away. That was probably my first time like really realizing like how like just how racially divided America is and how some parts of the world are. And then that really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And just over the years, like there's like a there's an abundance of, of black people that have been like that have names have gone like you know global or, or worldwide. Just and 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 in a, in a way that it shouldn't because they had their lives taken and like they names are plastered all over these places when I, when ideally these people should still be here. And it's it it really is a traumatizing thing. Uh, I I I can't really call it and say if things are getting better. Uh, but you know. It, it just seems like a thing that's just going to take time, but you know, uh, yeah, that, that, that's pretty much all I had to say. I appreciate you uh, uh, ha having a conversation. No problem. I feel it's important to be a part of that conversation. And again, like I say, maybe before last year, I probably would have wanted to avoid talking about something like that. 
because like mm-hmm. I said, because as we said, you know, it is very divisive and we know there's a lot of people who want to run away from it. And there's probably a lot of people who may have come into this podcast to listen to Beyond the Mat and, you know, yeah. <laughs> heard this talk and they've switched off or they've skipped through this part, you know. So, um, so yeah, I think it's imp- very important to have these conversations. There we go. Yes, obviously. Uh, um, I think that was the thing, wasn't it, last year? Like you said, Andy, it was about people educating themselves because there were a lot of people in England like, oh, well, that's an American issue and all this stuff really happens in England. And, you know, we had the Stephen Lawrence case and things like that. And obviously it's just as prevalent prevalent in England as it is in the US. So you know, I think it was all about education and and. I think people reading and opening their eyes and, and seeing that, you know, this is a worldwide issue, not just to, to certain parts of, of the world. Um, but, I mean, so we mentioned be, you know, beyond the map, but just before we got into beyond the map, I mean, it'd be remiss of us, Andy, not to have you on. And obviously there's been a lot of spe- speculation about Will Ospreay and obviously he's a Red Pro champion. Is there any sort of like comment or anything you can tell us about that? Maybe uh, some Maybe some plans for the summer or anything? Yeah, so I think I alluded to it in in a Twitter Q and A we did last week. But um, essentially, our situation is not like New Japan's situation in the sense of with Will. Um, obviously, New, the the IWGP World Championship needs to be defended and needs to be, you know, the a headline part a showpiece of their shows, I guess. Um, and and it needs to be defended soon. And I think that there's obviously a demand. Anyone who sees, you know the business of New Japan at the moment and the business of Japan in general can see, you know, you need to have those feature things on the shows uh, in order to, you know, generate your tickets and, you know, and and you can see from the way the cards were laid out over the last few months, you know, uh, if it wasn't for, so for example, that the last show with uh, Shingo and Will, if it wasn't for that IWGP heavyweight championship match, then what would, you know, what would be the draw for the card? You know, um, so I think it's very important that they keep their championship in play. Um, whereas where we were stood, um, we've not, you know, we hadn't factored in any Will Ospreay championship defenses in at least the first few months of us getting back to running live shows. Um, so it doesn't really put us in any different situation than we were at because we didn't know, you know, what, how, how, how much access we would have to Will, because obviously the thing is, if you're in Japan regularly, and Will was living in Japan, he's been living in Japan since um, what was it, September last year. Yeah. Um, so you know, with him being in Japan, like you know, if he was coming backwards and forwards, he'd have to quarantine for two weeks every time he came back, and two weeks every time he goes there. Um, so how's that going to work, really? You know. Um, so we hadn't really factored anything in. Um, so as a result, we the situation as at the moment is Will still the British heavyweight champion. Um, he's getting, I know he posted a picture of one of his x-rays um, yesterday, I think. Um, but he's getting assessed as we speak. Um, well, probably not as we speak, but you know. Um, and uh, he's going to, he will address the situation um, at one of our early shows back. We'll communicate when that show will be because obviously we need to just line up when we're going to, um, when he's ready to talk and, you know, uh, where we can fit it on. Um, but it'll be one of the first shows back, um, if not the first show back. But obviously we'll communicate all that information in due course. Um, we need to have a clear idea of exactly what's happening before 
um, you know, before he comes and says stuff. But I guess it's, you know, we're looking at what, five weeks away now, six weeks. I don't know what the, how far away we're looking. So it very well could be right that first show back. Um, and he will address the situation. Um, it may be a case that he needs to vacate the belt. It may not be. I genuinely don't know right now. But, um, you know, everything was very much up in the air when I spoke to him um, when, I mean, I spoke to him last week um, and he was just awaiting these uh, doctor's appointments. So we'll see what happens. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful, obviously, that the championship can be won and lost inside a ring, as, as I'm sure everyone else is. Um, so, like I say, we'll see what happens. And saying, Andy, I know you guys are going to do the um the, the great British tag league with, with, with fans in attendance. Hey, man, I'm telling you, I, I haven't seen. I don't, I'm surprised New Japan didn't jump on it, but you guys showed up. We, we, you got you got to get marks over there, man. And they got you got to do the tag team. I, I haven't. I, I thought New Japan was going to do it, but they haven't jumped on it yet. Yeah, I mean, we we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we uh like uh I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. Um, but like uh I. I I would like, again, Tag League isn't going to be the one, but because obviously when we're looking at it and we're saying like, you know, can you see the mocks? The mocks? Is that a thing? The mocks? Can you see the mocks? Can you see mocks in the cockpit? Obviously, I'm not saying that would never happen because obviously Sonata was in the cockpit and people just like, oh, only Sonata. <laughs> well, still had to be paid, didn't he? Um, and uh, um, but uh, you know, the the, the tag league is going to be spread out across all those shows when we come back. So it's going to be A block shows and B block shows. Um, but um, of course, we always say that um, you know John Mox is someone we would like to work with. Um, and uh, I just felt like I should uh, you know go a bit further and clarify the point and just saying we'll see. Um, because we would like to, we would like to work with him. Um, we are, you know, I'd say relations with AEW are good, um, and I hope that it's something that can happen somewhere down the line. Um, and as with everything, we're just waiting really for airspace to open up. To you know, we've not with with a lot of these guys because a lot of guys I'd love to use. Like you know, I'd love to use FTR in the, you know as a, as a team on a regular basis or semi as regular as we could get them. But, you know, I've not even entered conversations with, is that kind of thing possible? Um, is it something they'd be interested in? Is it something AEW would be interested in? Because we don't know what international travel looks like yet. We still don't know. Um, so as and when things open up, um, anything's the limit. But uh, I'm sure you saw it was, was speculated. There was nearly a reunion between Mox and Shota uh, quite yeah. recently. Um, but obviously... It just wasn't to be. The wrestling gods weren't smiling on that day. But uh, but yeah, I think that somewhere down the line, there's definitely going to be a reunion between Mox and Shota, and hopefully it's in Rev Pro. Um, but you know, if not, I'll enjoy it wherever it is because uh, it's uh, it's certainly a it's a unique pairing, um, which it just it just works, doesn't it? You know, and I just feel like it's 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 very rare you get something like that, and especially something that gets a cult following like that. Um, so, so yeah, it's great. And obviously Shota, he carries that Death Riders jacket everywhere with him. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he, he's very proud of it as well. 
That's uh, yeah, you wet our appetite anyway for uh, for these shows <laughs> in the summer. That's for that's for sure, Andy. But um, I, I, I just want to I just want to clarify: John Moxley will not be at the London cockpit. So please, <laughs> anyone who buys tickets, don't be upset and get on me for false advertising. <laughs> Sorry, I think all these Friday Q and A's now are going to be: When's John Moxley coming to the uh, cockpit? <laughs> Yeah, it's moved on from show through me now to Moxley, so there you go. Sorry about that. But um, on to uh, what we're here to talk about today, and uh, Beyond the Mat is obviously um, a really famous wrestling documentary released in 1999 to uh, good reviews, not just in the wrestling world. They're uh, doing the research for this today. Um, it also got a lot of uh, play in sort of like mainstream uh, media as well, a lot of reviews from the likes of Empire Magazine and things. And it's got a really strong 82% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and... Obviously, the director of this is uh, Barry Blaustein, who, um, who previous to making the documentary, worked as a writer. Uh, it seemed mainly for comedy shows like Saturday Night Live, and then he wrote a number of Eddie Murphy vehicles like Coming to America. Um, and looking at his IMDb, he sort of seemed to work sporadically, but he came back to write the sequel, Coming to America, uh, that was released earlier this year. And... Um, We'll go with you first, Andy. Just some of your memories of when this first came out. It had a cinema release over in the UK as well, in in the US. Because um, for me personally, I'd I'd never seen anything like this at the time, and so much access, especially behind the scenes at WWE, and it seemed um, the perfect timing for a documentary like this with uh, wrestling going through um, the big Attitude Era boom period. Yeah, I like. So I never really knew what Beyond the Mat was or what to expect from Beyond the Mat, but. The first I saw of it was uh, it was advertised in Power Slam magazine um, and maybe in the, the what's going down section. Um, it may be have been mentioned in that and the fact that it was getting that limited cinematic release. Um, I was it, it was all the cities were too far away from, uh, you know, young me being able to get to to watch it in the cinema. Um, but I knew I had to see it. And I remember. It's strange because when you asked me about this uh, this podcast, I was thinking back to Beyond the Mat. I wish I'd had a chance to watch it before, um, a- again before, but I used to be able to recite it pretty much line for line. But there's so many emotions around Beyond the Mat. Um, and I remember the, when I got it for the first time, it was on VHS and I was in my local Woolworths um, and it was on, it was, it was just, it was there on like the top shelf. Um, and I just remember that black cover and I was just like, I need this. And I think it has an age rated. I can't remember what it was rated as. Was it 15 or 18? It must have been an 18 with all the blood in it, I'd imagine. Yeah. And I was, I know I was too young, but my mum purchased it for me. Luckily, she was with me at the time. We were going to my aunt's house. And, uh, <laughs> which was Saturday. It was customary Saturday. Go to, go to my aunt's house and watch the wrestling because we never had Sky. And, uh, and this time we popped in Wolves on our way and there it was beyond the mat just sat there and I could not wait to get home to watch it. And when I watched it, it just blew my mind. So obviously I can, there's, there's a number of different ways that you can ask me about how I watched it. The first time I watched it, I was just like a wide eyed teenager who had never seen anything like this in all my life. And it was Okay, it sounds like an exaggeration when I say this, but it was a life-changing moment for me (laughs) watching that documentary for the first time. It was something else. Yeah, I mean, Andrew, you've uh, you told me you'd seen clips of this, but only just watched the full thing recently. I mean, um, how did it stand up for you? Obviously, we were watching this at time before 
you know, the WWE Network right. and all the documentaries you see now, they're constantly, you know, letting you behind the scenes. But at the time, this was really, really, this and obviously Wrestling with Shadow was a Brit Hart one. Really, I yeah, that, that... at the time. But how do you think it stands up for you watching it sort of like more recently than uh, than me and Andy? Yeah, so, so I was actually going to ask you guys, like, do you guys remember the reaction amongst fellow wrestling fans to this documentary, seeing as how it it opened that proverbial door. Like, I'm, when this documentary first came out, I think I was probably like four, and then I, I've and and, I, and I've always seen like clips uh, of the documentary on you know social media, Twitter, and Instagram and stuff, but I never sat down and watched it in full. And I watched the whole thing uh, earlier today, and it was a really good documentary. And I, I kind of only thing I was thinking about was I wonder how people were reacting to this, like you know, probably in 2000, 2001. Uh, when it first came out in 99 and I, I think it was I, I think it strikes up a real interesting conversation as far as how you know how 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 I perceived it you know of course in this current current time and when where you know we constantly see documentaries and you know little, little mini shorts here and there of, of backstage and you know people interacting and you know but we, we see that constantly now so it seems like nothing new but I can only imagine you know how, how much of a uh, uh, interesting frenzy uh, that it caused you know seeing as how the business wasn't as open as it is now. I don't know about you, Andy, but for me, I think remembering watching it back then was the uh, the two most striking things were Mick Foley and The Rock going through their match together pre, and also a lot of the stuff we saw of Vince, you know. Obviously, in this, he's still acting up to the camera, you can tell that, but it's still Vince being himself rather than the character we see on TV, maybe. Um, for me, it was Dennis Stamp. He became, I don't know why, he became a cult hero for me. Um, I loved him. And, I, don't, and I, I, don't, I think a lot of people who watched it didn't see that at first. Um, and then, like, upon second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth viewing is when he, he started to really stand out and become the, the cult hero. And I loved for whatever, the story of Jake Roberts. I know he hates it, but, you know, it doesn't particularly shine in a good light. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think the story of Jake Roberts is was also a, a huge part for me. The stuff with Rock and, you know, I, I did, you know, if anything, it made me feel guilty being a wrestling fan, watching Foley get smashed over the head with a chair and, you know, the Noel screaming at ringside and Dewey that was there and just... That that made me feel a little bit guilty, if anything, uh, being a wrestling fan. But I think um, for me, it was yeah, like I say, more of a Jake Roberts and uh, uh, and Dennis Stamp were the, my two uh, key bits. And there's so much. I'm sure we. I hope we get a chance to talk about it. There's so much unintentionally funny stuff, which mm. you have, which isn't a lot of it. Isn't funny, but <laughs> you can see the humor in it if you are lighthearted. It's like I say, it still does, um, you know, stand up today. Obviously, visually, it looks dated being in standard definition, but it's still one of the best wrestling documentaries around there because it opens up and obviously um, Blaustein's talking about how he became a a wrestling fan and how, you know, people viewed his fandom and how it was looked on, you know, a lot of people were mocking him for being a wrestling fan and this was his sort of, like, thing to say. And and that's... And that's why this documentary is so great because instantly it hooks you. Any so any single wrestling fan can relate to that opening statement. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone has been through that period of like, you know, I don't know why I'm a wrestling fan, but I just am. You know, and people look down on this thing I love. So the second he opens with those lines, I don't know. I think he's like, I don't know why I like it. I just do something yeah. like that. I don't know. Um, but the second he opens with those lines, 
boom, every single wrestling fan is hooked because we can all relate. And that's why it's so well put together. Yeah, definitely. And also, uh, I didn't mention as well, this is um, executive produced by Ron Howard, obviously. Really famous from uh, his, his time on Happy Days and obviously he's a really accomplished director now. And I'm assuming that is, um, you know, helped him get the funding for this and also also maybe helped him get the access a big name to throw out there for the likes of WWF. Because obviously we open up and we are straight at the WWF headquarters in, uh, in Connecticut and obviously... You know, one of the most memorable bits of is right at the start with uh, the receptionist just literally answering the phone over and over again. Do we one moment, please? I'll connect you. And I think that was uh, something that fans obviously remember at Titan Towers there. And then we're straight into Vince McMahon, who explains that um, we make movies, which must be one of the most famous lines of dialogue from the film before having a massive power chug of water. Um, that's that's one that's quoted quite a bit from people. And then, um, you know, we see a variety of things from WFE's uh, directing backstage vignettes with a dude love Mick Flowley. And then um, we also see a bit of Jim Johnston. Um, yeah. Now he comes up with a Vader's theme, which was quite interesting at the time because he was sort of like this hidden figure, Andrew. And obviously a lot of podcasts and stuff talk about Jim Johnston now, but um, interesting seeing him at the time, definitely. Yeah, Jim Johnson, he's like made quite a few uh, media rounds over the past like several months or so. Like I think in one of his recent interviews, he he, he has said that the music in um, WWE and AEW is like mediocre. And I was, I, and, 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 and like, if I was making music, like just knowing Jim Johnston's, uh, like his, his history and what, like what he's done and like the things he's created, I'd be like, that, that that's a, like a little a little shot in the gut right there, man, coming from somebody like him. Uh, I'd be kind of hurt off that one. Oh, well, uh, yeah. I, I can sort of agree with him. I don't know about you, Andy. Not, <laughs> the themes well, don't seem as memorable these days as they did uh, back when he was producing them. Well, of course, the AEW music producer, Mikey Ruckus, is also a home music producer, so I won't have a bad word said about <laughs> it. Um, so, but, um, but, yeah, that's a, I, I've, been, I've been sat there just in my head going, World Wrestling Federation, one moment, World Wrestling Federation, <laughs> one moment um, since that, uh, that time. Um, and uh, one story, uh, so there was a time when, so just I'm going to drop a few names here. Um, but again, I, I need to emphasize enough what a cult film this Beyond the Mat has, was for me. Um, and there was a time when we had stay in uh, at my flat. So this is obviously younger, my younger youthful days. But what about this for a, a little team? So we had, um, so we had Zack Sabre, we had Kyle O'Reilly, we had Adam Cole, we had Sammy Callahan, and we had El Generico all staying in my uh, on the floor of my flat wow. uh, for a week. And uh, and they were sick and tired, all of them sick and tired uh, the, of, uh, of Beyond the Map by the end of that week. So I mean, El Generico was there as well. I'm not sure if I mentioned him. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and, uh, and the, one of the things was that World Wrestling Federation, one moment, World Wrestling Federation, one moment. And, uh, and that became a bit of a thing throughout the week. Um, and yeah, it, it nearly led to some violence on one particular night when um, a few of us were up late watching Beyond. That's what we did. Chilled out. Come back from a night out. What do you do? Watch Beyond the Mat. And then scream World Wrestling Federation one moment over and over again. <laughs> um, so, uh, so yeah. So that was a good a good time. Um, but I forget what the question was. Um, so who, oh, was, the music. Who, was into it, who was into it and who wasn't then out of that group of people you just mentioned? I, I distinctly remember Adam Cole shouting, will you lot shut the up? <laughs> um, I d- but I think he liked his sleep. And I don't, I, I can't, yeah, I, I just, uh, I think he just wanted to go to sleep. Um, <laughs> but 
<laughs> but yeah, it was. And when the Brits came to visit as well, like the British lads, it, when they were come to visit, they were they were big into it as well. Um, you know, over the top of the Americans. Um, so maybe it's just a British thing. I don't know. Maybe it's a. It's almost like a. You know, like The Office. You know, it's a bit like that, isn't it? You can find those cringe office moments within mm-hmm. Beyond the Mat, and obviously that Vince Power Chug is is very David Brentish. It's like a, you know, David Brent on steroids, isn't it? Quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, but um, but yeah, and that, but also that that music scene as well, just fantastic. Just that blew my mind as a child. And it still stands with me to this day. So the thing that he says, he says, so we've got Vader. He walks like this. And then obviously he then starts playing his music over the top of him walking to the ring. And that's always stayed with me to this day about wrestling music, having to be definable to the character. Um, and I'm not suggesting that I'm any, that the, the music, obviously we, we, the music we produce is on a budget and whatever have you. And it's, it's never going to be uh, a, um, a classic, like some of the, you know, the, the Jim Johnson themes, which has, have been made over the years. Um, but I do feel one thing that we're able to do is cr- what I, well, at least in my mind is we're able to create themes, um, which stick in people's minds. Um, so, um, so, when I think now of, of even some of the new themes we've made, the, the, the lines, the theme sticks in my mind and gets stuck there and almost to the point of annoyance because it's individual to that specific wrestler. And when I think about that wrestler, I think about the theme. Um, and that's something that's stood with me since just that tiny little bit from beyond the map where I was like, oh, the wrestler's music is important. I never thought about the wrestler's music before until that's a bit on beyond the mat. And that's about as far as my research into wrestlers music has gone. Um, and, but like, I, I've taken that little nugget of information and been like, now I'm an expert. So, yeah. You say that yeah. though, but, um, my wife who was in a wrestling fan, it all came to one of the red pro shows and she had a Sabre junior man. He's a technical wizard man stuck in her head for about a month. And there you go. And that's what we're aiming to do. We're aiming <laughs> to annoy, we're aiming to, we're aiming to annoy people and those they live with. Um, so, so yeah, but that was another example of it, you know, like it wasn't again, like it, it, it was a divisive song. Um, but Zack Sabre Jr. is a technical wizard man going over and over again. That sticks in your head. And, uh, and that's what, that's what we're aiming to do when that music comes on. Obviously we spell out it's Zack Sabre Jr. But when the music comes on, you know who that music belongs to. Um, I think it's hard in this country because obviously um, we're so, and I guess the Indies in the US as well, but we're so accustomed to just using copyright music that the first time you hear a theme um, that you don't know, you instantly repel against it. Um, it's just a natural instinct. Every single time I hear a theme the first time, I don't like it. But then on a, upon a few listens, you kind of get used to it and get into it a bit more. Um, but um, But yeah, I feel that, like I say, going going back to Beyond the Mat, that that one scene in Beyond the Mat shaped um, the way I look at wrestling music. Yeah, I think, I think that's a real interesting conversation. The the the, the topic of theme songs because it, I, I think they are. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't like wholeheartedly like a hundred percent agree with what Jim Johnson said. I think I do think some of the themes may, maybe aren't up to par compared to his, but I think we think there are some really good themes out there. Like even with a. Uh, like Darby Island's theme in AEW, like immediately as soon as you hear that opening opening part of his song, you immediately know who that is, and then you hear the crowd obviously react to it, and then the, the way the beat is kind of laid out, it gives people the kind of the chance to like clap along to the beat and chant his name 
like in sync with the beat and like even going to uh uh, WWE, like you got a talent like Bianca Belair, when you hear that signature uh, hair whip at the beginning of her song, you immediately know who that is. So, so I, I do think it's like you know, I mean, I, I do think what he said was, I, I guess you could say like forty percent correct, but like I, I don't like wholeheartedly agree with what he said. What I will say as well is when you're coming up with music, so um, it, so AEW has been around for what you know just over a year, okay, yeah. and. If you uh, when you're so when you're tasked with creating music and you have to create music for well look how many people are under the AEW roster but you know what I mean like so like you say you're creating sixty songs you know it's very hard but mm-hmm. if you're you know once those songs are established when a new wrestler comes it's a lot easier because you're focusing on just one song you know and I know and I've done it in a small scale so when we did. Um, I think when we did the TV, we made 20 songs. And then when we did these empty arena tapings, we did maybe another 16, 17 songs. Um, And I know that from that experience, you know, you start off strong and you take your time with everything in terms of, you know, I want to change this bit of a song. I want to change this intro. We want to make the guitar heavier. We want to make the drums heavier, you know, change the tempo here. Can we add some lyrics here? Can we change this here? Um, And I know when you start, that's the intention to make every song perfect. But then eventually it gets down to it and you get down to that deadline. And all of a sudden, you know, you've only produced two songs out of 20 that you need to produce. You need to be a little bit, you need to rush a little bit, you know, you need to, um, you know, not perhaps give the attention and care that the songs deserve um, just because of the task, which is in front of you. And like I say, once the, once the table set as it is now in AEW, um, I'm sure there's a lot more time to focus on individual tracks. And I'm sure you'll probably see some of those ones which sound a lot more generic. I'm sure you'll see a lot of those become um, a lot more, uh, you know, have new versions of the tracks released and new tracks for the wrestlers, which are more suited for those wrestlers, Um, as well as, you know, what they're doing at the moment with mixing it with, um, you know, real tracks from the real world. Um, And that's great to be able to have that power to be able to license real original music, uh, real uh, real music as well. Um, Because I think that's obviously what led to a lot of ECW success. And, you know, but I digress. So uh, moving on with the documentary, obviously, this is where we get the first appearance of uh, Darren Drozdorf. He sat with uh, Jim Ross, Vince and Shane McMahon. And <laughs> Vince is here saying that, you know, Droz is able to regurgitate on command. And, you know, and according to Vince, it's only natural that his name's Puke. And Vince really seems to be in this idea um, of, of Droz being Puke. And, um, and he goes into full Vince mode here, you know, getting... Uh, Drozdov to uh, puke on command and, you know, doing his, he's going to puke into the trash can. I mean, um, thoughts on Vince here, um, Andrew? I mean, he seems very much larger than life, like you'd see him on TV. Do you think he's uh, him playing up to the cameras a bit? I I, I really can't call it. Like, I, I can see this, like, to, just from the stories that we've heard over the years, like, you, you can totally think that this is just him being him or may, maybe he is playing up to the cameras, like, this is one of those um, those scenes that you constantly get uh, that you constantly see get shared around social media quite often. I always see this one like well, immediately when I saw this, like I started thinking about like some of the like the the, the craziest uh, Vince McMahon stories, like and, and, and even the one that that like, recently comes to mind or like comes to mind to me is I think about how he hired uh, Butterbean to come knock out Bart Gunn because Bart won the tournament that he wasn't supposed to win. Like mm-hmm. the, the, so it, it's some of the like craziest craziest stuff but like just, just looking at him like going the whole he's gonna puke and all that type of stuff i mean i i i, I can't i honestly can't call it until you if he was just playing up to the camera so that's just you know that's just how he is 
Yeah, and then we move on to um, All Pro Wrestling, a company based in California, and meet their owner, Roland Alexander. Uh, Roland's sadly no longer with us, but um, it seems the, the company's still going to this day. Um, th- initial thoughts on uh, on Roland, Andy? Um, well, that's where you get some of the un- unintentional humour, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> so... Um... You know, I, you get the, the contrasting scene of him saying, like, I pay the guys and I pay the guys well. And then yeah. you go to Tony Jones and he's like, <laughs> you know, sometimes we don't get paid at all. You know, and I'm like, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I, I think that that's, you know, he's certainly a character. Um, I feel like he, he probably looks at it and feels like he was hard done by Because obviously there's a scene of him, you know, Roland Alexander and his, um, uh, his physique sat in a chair telling people you know do you look at the labels on food and take you know make sure you see what's in the food you're eating and you know giving people nutritional advice um i'm sure that um you know that was perceived to be a bit of a hatchet job um but um when really you can imagine he was just there trying to say the right things because the camera was on him like do i think for one second roland alexander was actually asking students who enrolled to his wrestling school um you know uh do you check the labels of what you're eating? Like, I don't, I don't buy that. I think he's just taking the money, you know? And I think he's just saying, like, what would a, what would someone in the wrestling school, you know, a reputable business, what would they be saying to their students? Um, because we know wrestling's carny, you know? Um, he has got a saying which uh, I like to use all the time at my wrestling school, which is, you don't pay, you don't play. Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's, again, one of the many influences. But, um but yeah, he, he certainly comes across as a little bit carny. Um, but, you know, then you see the, the footage from the show and it, it to me, like, as a, I just remember upon watching it the first time, um, I was like, wow, this show looks really cool. You know, like fans stood down the stairs. I know it's a little building, but it seemed, it just seemed quite cool and unlike anything that I'd ever really seen before. Yeah, yeah, so with the uh, you talked about the new students and he's asking for a five hundred dollar commitment from them, and then he does say that you know if you are a nice guy in the wrestling business, the wrestlers are going to walk all over you. And I thought, Andy, as a promoter who also runs a wrestling school, what are your thoughts on some of these uh, practices in terms of what I found interesting was that it said that you got ten percent of the contract if uh, Mike Modest and uh, Tony Jones did sign with WWE. Is that sort of like a common practice on the? US Indies, or is, is this some like just something that Roland was doing? So, well, I have no idea, but I know I certainly don't get a percentage of anyone's contracts. <laughs> I've helped, I've helped quite a few people in my time, um, and yeah, and I certainly get no kickback. Um, so, so yeah, I, I honestly have no idea. That maybe again, that seems like a carny, you know, a carny way of doing things, and a bit of an old school way of doing things. You know, if you read away about you know some of the way stuff was done in the past. Um, but I do believe, you know, his philosophy, like I always try to be a nice guy in the wrestling business. And I believe there's m- numerous occasions when my generosity and has been taken advantage of. Um, so I understand his viewpoint in, in you know, you've got to be a prick in this business. Um, I do understand why he might be saying that. But my mentality is, you know, like I have I have let my kindness um uh, blow up in my face on numerous occasions, um, but I still want to personally just try and do the right thing always, um, and what I believe to be the right thing, um, because I just believe if you follow that set of principles, then surely at some point life's got to turn around and be kind to you, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, that I, 
I don't really know any. I don't. I don't have any. You know, promoters inside scoop on the way things worked in the in the US there. Um, but uh, maybe Roland was just trying his luck. Yeah, him, him saying uh, that, he, that he gets twenty percent of their deal if they were to make it in the WWF. Like I had to rewind that part to make sure I heard it right. I was like, hold on, hold on, what? He he gets twenty percent of their deal, but like I, I think that just goes to show you, like I I think how like how how much times have changed as far as like uh, independent wrestling goes and how promoters have uh, obviously developed a a, a more uh, wrestler friendly favoring more of the of the wrestler mindset. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, Roland had his uh his ideals and his you know his ideas about how to how to uh, go about things. Yeah, but also I think it was it was a different time as well. So mm. I feel like now to get in front, like back then to get into WWE was very hard, um, and now it's a lot easier. Um, a lot of that is due to just being able to you know I guess Canyon Siemens email is is an open secret amongst people um, who work within the industry. Um, and, you know, there's numerous people you can reach out to to try and help you get booked on shows. Um, but, you know, back in the day, like making it to WWE was like a huge deal and you really had to have the right connections to get the right, you know, to get in. Um, and I look at, um, you know, back in the day, and it was probably a few years after this when Paul Birchall got into WWE. If you remember what a huge deal that was at the time mm. from a UK perspective to, oh, my God, someone from England's in WWE. And now it's almost uncommon to not be a part of WWE. Um, so, um, yeah, I think where it was a lot more of a closed shop in terms of, you know, getting in, um, perhaps as a wrestler, you may be more inclined to say, well, look, if you can get me a tryout, then you can put, if you can put me in front of the right people, then, you know, then it's worth giving you a split of my contract. Um, I'm just speculating. I don't know for sure, right. but obviously the world has changed a lot. No, definitely. That's a very good point. Um, I'd not actually considered that because obviously in the documentary, do go back to WF and uh, Mike Modis and Tony Jones get their tryout match. Um, I think it's before a house show. That's what it looks like anyway. And obviously we see Jim Ross, Jim Cornette and Vince McMahon watching on the monitor backstage. And I was listening to uh, Conrad Thompson's podcast with uh, Bruce Pritchard where he was talking about this documentary. And Conrad goes, would this really happen in real life? Would Vince be there watching the monitor? And he was like, absolutely not. So obviously this is the <laughs> stage of the documentary. And um, it's weird because Cornette seems quite high on these guys and um, everyone else not so much. Jim Ross doesn't, he's just like saying, oh yeah, they're pretty decent. And um, what is, what Jim is, Ross gave a pretty spectacular. That's what he said. That was the line he kept saying, pretty yeah. spectacular. And then uh, I, I can't work out the wrestler at the back who says, oh, I'm going to steal that move. Um, when one of them it's one of the headbangers, isn't it? Oh, is it? <laughs> I'm stealing it. I'm stealing it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's weird because obviously these two are most well-known for um, their appearance in this documentary. But Mike Morris did actually go on some success in uh, in WCW after this. And uh, it seems that Tony Jones did made a few sporadic appearances on the likes of Heat and Jack and even went over to <laughs> Japan for a couple of tours of Japan. So, um and, uh... No, I was gonna say it seemed like Tony Jones. Like saying he had the size that uh, you think a WWF would have won it back then. I know he did. Yeah, like he didn't uh, work on his upper body though, so he didn't get yeah. in the hunt, did he? <laughs> yes, I, I know he did a. Uh, I think his last match was out was out in uh, California. I'm gonna say like in 2017. And like Martin said, he was like he did like some uh, spots like on for WWE, like on heat and like velocity and stuff like that. Like I, I don't think he was like ever really like able to break out of like that California wrestling scene i think that was like where he was like prominently based and i don't think he was ever like get outside of that scene 
Yeah, I think both those guys, like, had it been, you know, again, it was a different time. Had this documentary come out, like, now, they would have been booked all over the shop, wouldn't they? You know, so um, I think that it's just, it was just a different time. But I feel like, um, yeah, that, that scene, those scenes, I mean, there are some fantastic parts in that, which, uh, you know, you've got Roland Alexander, who is like, um, you know, he talks about Mike Modis being too big to be, uh, a cruiserweight but too small to be a heavyweight and he's like the fact that Mike Modis doesn't have a contract that's a travesty and he's chewing so hard on his gum mm. and uh, and his eyes are welling up and it's just like that's a travesty and that is just a pure moment an absolutely wonderful moment in this documentary um, which is severely overlooked um, and I will say um, that you know there's a we always used to joke at the wrestling school, like if, if something was going on, if a, people were showing a match and someone had to leave or whatever, you'd always give the, you know, can I get a tape of that? You get me a tape? Yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> you know, um, so there's so much of this stuff and obviously the, you know, work a bit on your upper body, like just as a rib, you know, like, so again, with this documentary, so this is something, so Wrestling With Shadows is my number one, right? Because I'm just a huge Bret Hart fan, mm -hmm. but this documentary, Wrestling with Shadows, Beyond the Mat, Wrestling with Shadows, are, to me, they're two documentaries that every single wrestling, every single person within the wrestling business should watch and understand. If anything, just to see how the industry has changed over the years. Because obviously, with Wrestling with Shadows, you've got the importance of um, the heavyweight championship, which any modern day fan would look at that and be like, I can't believe there's all that fuss over the heavyweight championship. Um, and Beyond the Mat has obviously got so much stuff about wrestling at that time you know and i feel like as historical pieces they both still stand up to this day and they're both so important for anyone studying the wrestling business to watch um and we always tell our students to watch these documentaries as well as many other things mm. um but there's so many of them who haven't watched it who say that they've watched it and then just as a rib you know people will ask for advice and I'll just quote direct from beyond the map. No, <laughs> you know, like, is, is there anything I need to do, Andy? Well, maybe if you work a little bit on that upper body there, you know, get yourself something a little bit more flattering, then you'll get yourself in the hump. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Moments after telling me they've watched beyond the map, you know, and I'm not sure if it's, I'm not sure if it's because I've watched it in too much detail um, or because they're not telling me the truth. Um, but uh, but yeah, but it's, perhaps it's a blessing that they haven't watched it because I'm able to get away with quoting stuff like that and just internally laughing to myself because not <laughs> many people not many people get it, you know. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I'm able to make myself laugh. Yeah, that's quite funny. He'll have to try the We Make Movies instead of wrestling one one time. I oh, I've, I've of course I've done that many times. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, yeah, many times I've done the We Make Movies. And, uh, and then we're on to uh, Terry Funk. We see him at the uh, infamous Double Cross Ranch out in uh, Amarillo, Texas, which uh, I was looking at has now been sold. I think he sold it a couple of years ago and moved out of Amarillo. And we see uh, Terry Funk, uh, members of his family, talking about how long he's going to continue wrestling for. His wife noting that she wanted him to retire in 1990. Uh, mm. Poor woman. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, uh, Funk was still wrestling up until a couple of years ago. And then the, the try and show Funk's... Uh, Tender side with him being at home with his family and obviously his daughter's wedding and things like that. And then they intercut that with footage of a death matches of him in Japan. And um, Andy, I wanted to ask you, obviously Funk came over here for that FWA show, didn't he? The Coventry Skydome. Were you riffing, yeah. were you riffing around that time? Yeah, I was at the show. I, was, I refereed on the show and I, 
helped put the ring up at that show and take the ring down at that show and helped out with the fan fest. Yeah, I was uh, very much a, uh, a part of that show. Uh, but unfortunately, I didn't referee the Terry Funk match. So no interactions with Terry Funk then on that one? Um, just, uh, well, we said hello. Like, again, he was very, like, so obviously you tend to remember more of the people who were dickheads to you. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, now, in, in, those, but in, in those days, so I was very young and I looked young as well. Um, and I, I'd like to think I still look young, but, you know, I, I look at myself in the mirror. My God, lockdown has aged me. But, um, but um, you know, for someone at, who's of that status to show respect to little old me who's just happy to be there, you know, I think that means a lot and shows a lot about someone's character. Um, and, you know, he was very respectful and, you know, he could have just dismissed me totally. Um, so, you know, I think that that's, that says a lot about Terry Funk. And I know everyone who spent any time with him that weekend had nothing but positive uh, things to say about him. Um, so, uh, yeah, I wish that I had been able to spend more time with him. And also, I don't really think I was as aware of Terry Funk then mm. uh, in terms of what he'd done in the wrestling business as I am now. Um, so I think for me, if I was to be able to spend time with him again now, um, I certainly would have made more of a point to try and annoy him, <laughs> pick his brains <laughs> a little bit um, and take advantage of his good nature uh, by trying to become his friend. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, so there's many people like that I look at over the years where it's like, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, I'd love to have been able to have, uh, have spent some more time uh, with them, you know, given the fact that I had that access to them. But I'm sure they'll probably be grateful that, you know, 18-year-old me wasn't, you know, wasn't that into them because uh, I think that, you know, I probably could have thoroughly annoyed Terry Funk by the end of the day. <laughs> yeah, uh, Terry Funk is a trooper, man. Like, especially that scene when he was sitting in the, um, the doctor's office and he, he was getting the information about his knees and, and uh, the doctor was just informing him, like, how left everything could go if he were to continue wrestling and he was just like you know basically like just telling the doctor whatever he wanted to hear so he could get out of there and go on about his business <laughs> and go and go on to wrestle another show and like he, it was one part that he said he was like so if if i get this surgery uh am i am i, go, am I going to be able to like am i still going to have knee problems or like am i going to have problems like later down the line and the doctor was like you, you, you shouldn't be walking now like he was like tell her like you shouldn't be you shouldn't be wrestling you shouldn't be walking now and i was just like and 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 the the way it, it I wouldn't say is the way Terry Funk looked at him, but he kind of was just like you, you could tell the only thing that was on his mind was just going to wherever he needed to go next and, and competing again. And I and Andy, I wanted to ask you, do you think that uh obviously like that that mindset uh it isn't I'm I'm not going to say I don't think accepted is the right word, but like the way I'm trying to phrase it is wrestlers still kind of have that I gotta go 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 mindset, but the promotions and the companies are kind of like no no you don't. Uh, we're we going to scale that back and we're going to sit you down until things get better. Like, how, how have you, like, kind of uh, assessed yeah. how, how things have gotten better over the years? Well, I think the mindset's definitely changed a lot. So, to me, the mindset was you make the book in no matter what. So, when I used to referee, just as an example, when I used to referee, I had a fracture in my wrist. Um, mm. So, there was a time when, like, you could see, like, a, I used to wear, like, a bandage on my, on my wrist. Um, and I remember one point, like, being in Germany, refereeing for WXW, and, like, my hand was, like, Agony. I can't even tell you how bad it was. But I was just like, oh, I'm being taken to Germany to be able to referee, you know, like what an honor. And this is, again, I was a referee, not even a patch on these wrestlers, right? Um, but my mindset and mentality was go, 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 go. You have to do it, right? And now I've got 
and I wasn't even wrestling. When you look at my life, I wasn't even wrestling refereeing for that long amount of time, really. Um, I think I've been not refereeing way longer than I have been refereeing now at this stage. Um, but I still have problems with my wrist going back to just not going to the hospital and get my arm put in a cast and letting it letting the bone, you know, reset properly. Um, and that used to just be a, a symptom of a, it was just a mindset at the time. But I feel like, you know, I didn't know. Like I always say, when we look back at wrestling in those days, um, we were just pretending to be the versions of wrestlers that we knew. So, like, mm-hmm. for example, that thing of Terry Funk, in many ways, we all saw that as we were coming through and we all took upon that mentality of that's the way a wrestler should be. You know, it's almost like a badge of honor going going to war wounded and still going and making the town no matter what. Um, and I think that that was, uh, is interesting because in many ways that, that bore all our mindsets. Um, but as time's gone on, I always say this and I'm not like, I'm sure society has changed a lot. And I know obviously WWE has changed the way they handle these injuries. And you remember the story about when Daniel Bryan was injured and Triple H called an the match and Daniel Bryan was furious and citing that Triple H obviously carried on when he was injured. Um, mm. and, um, but the mindset of the promoters definitely changed. Um, and I think a lot of it is just more knowledge um, right. and the understanding that. So in those days, and again, to me, wrestling's everything, right? But wrestling's not the be-all and end-all. But in those days, that was a mentality, you know, almost that I'd sooner die in the ring, you know? Like, that's a real badge of honour. But I just think that we've grown up. And, like, I can say I've grown up because, obviously, as a promoter, and as a performer, like throughout the years, I have grown up. And you'll see from the content which is on our shows, like, you know, back when I was a, a rebellious teenager, I was never rebellious. I just like to pretend I was. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you'd see, you know, we had matches where with light tubes and barbed wire and ironing boards covered in light tubes and, you know, stuff like that. Obviously, on uh, uh, over 18 shows. Um, and we would I'd have that on without a second thought. But now that's the furthest, that's the last I'd ever want mm-hmm. to do. And like, you know, we never take unnecessary risks and the, the big, big bumps and stuff like that, they only come on the big shows now, you know, and even our training school now, like I've, I've kind of tried to eliminate as many bumps as possible. We used to start every session with around the bumps because that's the way it was always done. But now, once people know how to bump, I try to limit their bumps as much as possible. Um, and it's not something that I would have thought about before, but it's something that as I get older, I become more conscious and more aware of. But also, having grown up in wrestling, having seen what's happened to those that grew up alongside me and to see the state of their bodies now um, and you know, recognising that people just need to look after themselves that bit more. So, yes, it's a part of, a part of it is us growing up you know, that us youngsters, because you always hear there's, there's an X-Pac thing, isn't there, where people used to tell him to slow down all the time and he used to think they were just trying to hold him down because they didn't want him to steal the spotlight. And now he's older, he's telling all the young wrestlers the same thing that he used to fob off when he was younger. Um, and I think that, obviously, as you get older, your attitude changes, but society has come a long way in its understanding of these injuries and the long-term implications of them and the fact that sometimes it is better to live to fight another day yeah like, and, and martin i was going to ask you like 
uh, like just just over the years, like I, I think we've kind of seen that mentality uh, that Andy just uh, elaborated on re- really shift as far as wrestlers go. Like you seeing wrestlers, like they don't like they wrestling is still their number one, but they're realizing that there are other ventures out there that they can dive into. Like you seeing the wrestlers like getting into Twitch, and you know some of them are taking the YouTube thing seriously, and some of them taking you know the video game thing seriously, and they like really making a, a true profit or a true following from that. Like you just seeing that shift happen in wrestling, where people realize like. Wrestling is my main thing, but there are so many different other things that I can do post wrestling. Yeah, and there's, I think there's a lot more of them, especially in the states, uh, getting university degrees and things like that, and looking yeah. at life uh, past wrestling rather than just seeing what's in front of the face. But um, in the documentary, we go back onto uh, Funk's work with ECW, and we're backstage at the first ECW pay per view, barely legal in '97, and. Um, Paul Heyman's always great in these things and he sort of like really demonstrates his passion because we see him giving a pep talk to the roster from uh, sort of halfway <laughs> up a staircase. And Andrew, I mean, Heyman's always good for value on these stuff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> rallying of the troops promo he does before the first big pay-per-view. And you can sort of see in Shane Douglas's face and certainly when he's uh, giving a little pep talk to Francine how nervous they are for him. I mean, we discussed on last month's show that, you know, this was you know, the biggest and most eyes that had ever been on ECW with this pay-per-view, and just Heyman was absolutely brilliant here. Yeah, we all know Heyman is one, is one of the uh, one, one, one of the, the, the best talkers to, to ever, you know, come through professional wrestling. That man would probably make a blind man think he could see. Yeah, Heyman's hey, 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 a very good talker. I remember me and you and um, John Lister, we, we, we dove into, you know, the whole fabric of ECW, and, 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 you know, we did a great deal of talking about Paul Heyman on the last uh, Bush being Thompson podcast we did. So, yeah, it was, I think Heyman is always a good fit for these um, th- these type of documentaries. And, and even um, more recently, like the one that I recently think about was they did like a, um, like, like a, a, one of those Target specials for the, uh, the, the, the Finn Balor and, carrying a cross match and they had, you know, Paul Heyman in there and like his, his adding him in there just kind of separated him from, you know, the other people that they interviewed for that, you know, for, for that piece. And it, you know, he, he just adds a certain, you know, a certain little extra, you know, to, to, to whatever's being uh, presented. What about you, Andy? Is this the sort of rallying uh, cry you give before every uh, pro show? Absolutely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> but, so, so, so back in, okay. So back in the day, um, I, and, I, and we did used to have like team meetings like this when we did IPW. Like, but this is back in the Orpington Hall days. So this is maybe 2005, 2006. Mm. Um, we used to have, um, have meet, like backstage pre-show meetings. Um, so Alex Shane always used to do FWA. He used to be able to cut a good uh, promo. But like um, we used to have these backstage meetings where we used to talk through stuff and whatever. And they very often used to end with you've made it to the dance and believe me knock on wood this is a dance right mm. kind of again just copying the end of paul Heyman's speech so i won't <laughs> say that we were we, i won't say that it was like we were copying i won't say that it, the, the speeches were done in that spirit to get everyone fired up and let's take on the world but there was always that you know there was always that little um nod and throwback to beyond the mat at the end and just with just the idea of all the roster crowded round and as we spoke to them about what was going on. Um, now, personally, I feel that it may be something that's, that's missing in terms of like, I feel perhaps I could do a better job of communicating to everyone as one whole, but like show days are just so crazy. I mean, the last time I did a, a talk in front of everyone, we did one at the first empty arena taping we did, and we did one at the TV tapings also, which weren't 
we basically it wasn't intended to be a, a pep talk. It was uh, intend. It was a no one knows what is going on. Mm. This is organised chaos, and we just need to get everyone together to go through everything. But um, you know, everyone wound up getting a bit fired up in that, and uh, um, and that was cool. Um, but I again, I think it's to my detriment. But at the same time, I always say to the wrestlers, like, I'd like you to be able to look back. And I say to everyone I talk to, I say, like, I'd like you to be able to look back at all the stuff that I've said to you, any promises I've made to you. Um, and you essentially know I'm not a bullshitter. You just know that I'm going to be telling it as I see it and, the, you know, and telling you my truth. And so as a result, I feel like I don't like to overpromise. And I feel that's what Paul Heyman's greatest power is he over promises mm. and i think that method of over promising it works it does work because it gets people fired up but sometimes you under deliver and you ha- and for every person you hear say positive stuff about paul Heyman, you hear lots of people say negative stuff about him as well but then at the same time you hear people say negative stuff about him, but then if they went in a room with him for 10 minutes, they'd walk away being like, he's the greatest guy on earth. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, I don't really want to find myself in that situation where I'm having to, you know, be slipping from one thing to the next. You know, I just like to play it level. Um, but every time I see that speech from Paul Heyman, it does inspire me. And it makes me want to, you know, get rally the troops and say, listen, let's do this. You know, I know Triple H is famous for these uh, promos. It's uh, his, uh, his reused promo. He did it at um, to one of the WrestleManias um, before the show. He did the speech to the NXT roster, giving it the, they've come into our territory and they've done, you know, like, he, like you know, about the independent shows. And everyone who was at the independents last year, who obviously reported it back, um, but everyone who was at the Independence like, the year before, who's now WWE contractors, they're standing there whooping and cheering, going, NXT, NXT, you know, <laughs> they're drinking that Kool-Aid. Likewise, he did the same thing um, before the NXT UK show on the same day as the New Japan show. Um, he, cut, uh, he cut that same promo, but verbatim, word for word, saying mm-hmm. New Japan are coming into your territory, taking food off your tables, giving <laughs> none of you jobs, you know, and he cut that promo on the NXT UK roster. And then you have many people in NXT UK who, you know, used to work for me and wanted to work for New Japan and whatever, and they're all there going, yeah, yeah, fuck New Japan, yeah, <laughs> NXT UK, woo! You, know, you just drink that Kool-Aid, don't you? It's that, it's that, um, it's a great ability to be able to do that. Um, and uh, yeah, I, maybe that's where I'm missing a trick and maybe that's what I need to get into. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's fantastic. And, and there's nothing like, um, you know, being able to see the magician work his magic in such a great way. Um, so absolutely fantastic. Yeah, you could definitely sell water to a well, I think, Heyman. But I really hope that was recorded, that story you've just been talking about. That would be hilarious <laughs> if that turned up on a... WWE Network documentary well, where just yeah, all these I, NXT UK guys. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, I'm sure it was because like everything's recorded. Like, do you know what I mean? Everything's recorded yeah. there, isn't it? Mm. You know. Yeah. Um, so I'm sure it was recorded. Um, but um, yeah, maybe one day it will. You know, if it turns into this roaring success, maybe they'll be looking back and saying, "New Japan Pro Wrestling came into the UK, our territory. We still did that pay per view and sold out in Cardiff." 
that, you know, like whatever, you know. But um, yeah, I, I it would be so intriguing to see that stuff. Yeah, definitely. And uh, back to the documentary, and uh, we see clips uh, from the Bailey Legal pay per view, and um, poor Terry Funk's wife in the audience watching him, sort of like doing moon salts and going through tables and obviously you know there's a lot of that in this documentary you know we're looking at the family side and how it affects them you know outside of the performers and um, a great quote here when um terry funk and mick foley are sat with each other and terry says that he found it stupid that the more you hate each other the more money you make and the more money you make the better friends you are i think that's um absolutely mm-hmm. brilliant quote really funny that one and um because they do introduce Mick Foley here, and obviously the cameras follow Foley quite a lot in this documentary, and um, we see his daughter Noelle saying that her favourite word was nipple, and then obviously his, his son Dewey, obviously famous from that uh, Kane Dewey promo um, from ECW. Yeah, Dewey, Dewey uh, he, he ran into 205 Live now. Oh, is he, he, he was behind the scenes at WWE. Yeah, I didn't realise he was running 205 Live. He used to uh, be a head writer with um, Adam Pearce, but you know Adam Pearce moved on to, you know, Currently, what he's doing, like the on-screen stuff, but Dewey, he's still managed to a five live. Wow, because um, obviously Noel Foley's all over social media and stuff, and that yeah. isn't she? And it's interesting to see them both as kids here. And uh, obviously, they do focus a lot on Mick Foley's um, family. Obviously, we see his wife Colette watching um, the you know really infamous Hell in the Cell from King of the Ring '98, and just saying you know she's scared because she knows this is this isn't it, you know, and there's worse to come. And um, what do you find weird in this when uh, Barry Blaustein plays the uh, answer phone message from Mick Foley and he says that, you know, he's really rambling and incoherent. And I didn't really find him that incoherent, to be honest with you. I don't know what uh, you two guys thought. It was just a, it was a, just one of those little triggers, wasn't it? You know, in order to, in order to advance a story. Like, the, the reason the documentary is good. So I've seen a lot of documentaries which have come out since then um, and... They don't have any threads. They don't have any narrative. So you need something to link everything together. And he was just using that, to me, he was just using that documentary as just that thread to keep the keep a tight story on the documentary. Um, mm. Because, you know, uh, the documentaries which have failed have been the documentaries which are just like, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and there's no link to link it all together. So I think that that's why he did it. I don't think for any reason, I don't think he was necessarily incoherent and rambling, as he said. Um, but, you know, he's telling the audience, it's a work, isn't it? He's mm. telling the audience what he wants them to think because he wants there to be that level of concern. Yeah, definitely. Because um, the documentary does take quite a dark turn now as um, as Barry sort of catches up with one of his other uh, favourites, Jake Roberts, and then... Obviously, in recent years, you know, Jake's obviously sorted himself out now with the uh, DDP, but, you know, this was him probably at his lowest. And uh, interesting that Vince McMahon says here that he, you know, with Jake Roberts, he didn't know at times whether he could separate the character from the person and he didn't quite know which Jake he was talking to at any times. And, you know, uh, mm. and obviously Roberts, uh, you know, he'd built up a, you know, a bad reputation for himself. Um, we even see him uh, showing uh, North Plate, Nebraska, of all places, uh, with a family who are uh, huge Jake fans. And to say that they're showcasing this as a small-time show, uh, there looks to be a very good house uh, there for this one. It looks to be um, a fair wow. 500, yeah. <laughs> this was amazing, because like, we always used to joke about that, because like he's like, this is as low as he could go without falling any lower or something like yeah. that is it you know like i said it's a long while since i've watched it so this is all just committed to memory but 
something along those lines. And we always used to laugh and we always used to, again, like I say, this, this documentary frames a lot of our wrestling lives and we'd be, you know, in brawling Corby in front of 10 people and we'd be like, this is about as low as we can, uh, this is about as low as we can go. Do you know what I mean? We'd, we'd re- recite that quote, you know, we'd be like, come on, like, look, that was a great house, wasn't it? You know, like aside from the fact he had to piss in a bucket, probably. Yeah, would say. <laughs> yeah. But it's probably because there was one toilet for the, do you know, for the workers and mm. the fans that he probably just didn't want to go for a piss in that toilet, you know? Um, mm. But yeah, I think that, that is crazy the way that was framed. But, when you do look at it from a perspective of he's shown the glitz and glamour of WWE and he's contrasting it with essentially a leisure centre, then you can make that argument. Like, it's, again, it's that artistic freedom, isn't it? You know, he doesn't have to go to the, the, you know, the small little community centres with 10 people at it. And, uh, uh, you know, he makes his point, you know. You put the two pictures side by side, your point's illustrated. Yes, these... um pockets of the documentary that kind of focused in on Jake Roberts, man. This was this, this was something like I I knew Jake's story and like I, I've heard like you know him you know going deaf about everything on interviews and stuff like that. But like I'm I'm I'm, I'm kind of I'm, I'm really glad to see like he's still going strong because he has had a life. Like I know they doing the, um what one of the one of the dark side of the ring episodes about Grizzly Smith and um you know I know Jake I think it was I, I want to say it was like the fall of last year he was talking about he had like a a COPD scare. And like it was like real bad to the point where he thought like that was gonna be like it for him. Like he he thought he was you know he was checking out and like just to see where he is now you know still on TV you know doing this thing with Lance Archer. Like I I'm just glad to see you know he he still he's still moving forward. But it it was one part that kind of like really like it 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 just rubbed me like the real like a wrong way when um when they had uh they that they had they had Grizzly Smith on there when they was like you know they was in the backyard and stuff like that and he was like you know. Say, say made a comment of like you know Jake was born out of love and stuff like I was I was like come like so and that's like, that, that's that, that shit was sick so yeah. and like as well it's like it's contrast isn't it so Jake says the way he was born and then you know like he says my something like my dad's girlfriend was my yeah. mom's mum mm-hmm. um, and said you know he came in and raped a little girl while she was sleeping and and then the next scene is directly Grizzly Smith saying. My son Jake was born out of love, and I still love him to this day. And it's just a, a contrast yeah. in, those, in those two things is just insane. And that's one of those again is it's sick, and but it's one of those that's one of those dark humor moments, you know, where it's just like this can't be sick. Like if you said that was a parody, you'd be you'd believe it. Mm. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. like it was real, and that's that's crazy. And then there's obviously the scene where they're after that, you know. Um, I think he, he he says he still loves Jake to this day, and then the next scene's them shoveling leaves. Mm-hmm. It's just like the whole time they were there, they didn't say a word to each other. Yeah. Right, right. Well, they don't even. I mean, Jake obviously talks about some other examples. Uh, obviously, the harrowing life that he had. You know, where uh, he says his stepmother got kidnapped, and then they never found the body, and then the person just got arrested for kidnapping and would never tell them where the, the body was. And then that's not even the tip of the iceberg. I mean, they don't talk anything about his brother, Sam Houston, who had a ton of problems and things like that. So when we are seeing this stuff where, you know, allegedly, you know, the promoter's saying that, um, you know, Jake told him he'd only come in for the show if he got him some crack. And then, you know, we, we see him um, reuniting with his estranged daughter, who was obviously, you know, there doesn't seem to be, as of the time of recording this documentary, there doesn't seem to be any sort of, like, love lost there from her. She's just 
really upset that, you know, she never got a dad when he was younger. And then obviously he's talking about being on the road and, you know, having, you know, uh, you know, having, you know, a variety of uh, sexual encounters with different wrestling fans and then having to come home and make love to your wife. And he's like, you know, it's just not there for you anymore. There ain't no way. Yeah. Ain't <laughs> no way. And um, yeah. it's, just, it's just, you can see why Jake ended up going down the path he did because obviously he says, you know, I wanted to shove the wrestling business up my dad's, you know, arse and I did and still that wasn't good enough for him. And like, you know, there, uh, Andy, you know, they do... We see Jake in the ring, and it's intercut with, um, you know, from WrestleMania 3 with him, with Alice Cooper to him at this show in Nebraska, and just to show um, the downfall of uh, of Jake Roberts here. And I know Jake's been very critical of this documentary, saying that sort of like he thinks that uh, Blaustein, um, you know, tricked him and, and lied to him about what he was going to be and things like that, and thought that he, you know, showed too much of what he filmed and things like that. And I think that's kind of understandable, isn't it? Because, you know, obviously it doesn't paint him in, in the best light. You see, it is, but I think it paints him as a pretty sympathetic character. Mm. So I don't think that if you watch it and you hear, like, because you hear the harrowing story of his, um, you know, his childhood and some of the things he went through, um, and you know, like getting chocolate on his jacket. That was, I'm sorry, yeah. but that was one of my favourite moments as well. And I still use that to this day. You know, what the fuck is this shit? <laughs> chocolate or something? You know, anytime I got a mark on my clothes. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but, um, but you know, I think it does paint him as a sympathetic character because you know, like, it provides context. So it's like, yeah, he was a shitty dad, right? But it tells you the reason why. You know, and I think if you watch that and you see how high he was and you see how far he's fallen, and I think you can generate a great deal of sympathy for him in watching that, you know, and I feel without Beyond the Mat, with the comeback story, would the resurrection of Jake the Snake Roberts, no. would that have as much impact without Beyond the Mat? So, mm. you know, I can see why he's got personal, because I think he had issues with not making any money from it. Um, and I could see that, you know, no one goes into a documentary, for lack of a better term, wanting to show their ass, right? Mm. Everyone wants to be shown in the best light possible. But mm. let's be honest, it was never going to be a story of, you know, where he was in that life. It was never going to be, Jake's still doing great for himself. Look at the house he's drawing, you know? It was never going to be that, was it, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, and I feel like, um, yeah, I don't know. I just think that it was a, it's a part of his story. And I just feel that, you know, I can understand why he was so negative towards it. But to me, and, and again, this is just my perspective. You might think differently. But I never looked at that being Jake's a heel in this documentary. I looked at it thinking Jake's a sympathetic character in this documentary. And I'm rooting for him. And I hope he can kick out, you know. And yeah. the good news is he has been able to, you know. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and I think that's the most important part of the story. Interesting in terms of this documentary, because normally when you watch a documentary like this, you see somebody at their lowest ebb and then sort of towards the end of the documentary, they always have the feel-good moment where they're turning the, their lives around. But we don't uh, really get that in this one, do we, Andrew? Yeah, man, it, it seems like... I, so when I was like... They, they, so it was like one part when they focused in on Jake and then they cut away and then they came back to him. But like, it, it just seemed like... Like for me, me looking at that through 2021 eyes and knowing what I know about Jake Roberts, I was just like, damn, he had a he had a real messed up life. And then towards the end, uh, like Andy said, they I think Jake was presented in a sympathetic manner because it was one part where he was um I think he was in the hotel and like he's kind of like I guess recapping you know 
parts of his life and you know some of the bad stuff he went through and endured and some of the stuff some of the bad stuff that he's done uh like maybe may, may, yeah some of the stuff that he's done to others that that it maybe hurt them or have hurt them uh, such, such as his daughter and he was talking about like how uh he doesn't feel sorry for himself and he like you know everything that has, that has come to me um you know, while I'm here, like he's like basically saying that he bought it onto himself or something like that. And I like that that was just like a, you know, one of those moments in the documentary where I was like, damn, you know, like him having his problems, whether it be from drugs or family or whatever, and you know, hearing him like straight up take ownership for his own faults and his yeah. sort of downfall. I guess I was like, you know, like you. I mean, like I, just looking at it, you know, me just being like, you know, that's a it's a grown adult. He made his own decisions. He messed up, and you know, he messed up he, more, more more times than you know may, maybe he wanted to, and you know, he took ownership for it as it appeared in that documentary. Yeah, definitely. But um, it's it's um a lot of people always uh, forget Andy that uh, Jake the Snake actually spent a number of years in the UK, didn't he? I know um, obviously it it was quite famous story in the press because he had um, a lot of trouble with the RSPCA over his treatment of the snakes. Uh, did you ever come across him while he was uh, while he was over here? Yeah, so um, as a fan, I actually went to one of his, um, he, he promoted some wrestling shows um, over here. And I went to, uh, I went to one of them at Southend, Southend Tennis and Leisure Centre. And I caught, he, he had, uh, he had Honky Tonk Man, Greg Valentine, um, God, maybe the it was like a, a little Brutus Beefcake was on there. It was like his uh, his WWF Legends tour, yeah. essentially. Um, and I went to that, and that was a uh, that was weird because uh, and at the end he cut this teary eyed promo. Um, at the end, basically, it was really weird. I can't, I don't know what he was trying to achieve, uh, but hating on himself and and uh, you know and saying that I don't know. He was just he was really a real. Horror, a real horrible way to end the show like you know i don't deserve your applause you know and i remember there was uh in south end there was someone who got up to leave and he guilted the person into sitting back down you know it was uh it was quite the the masterful piece of work um but i in terms of working shows with him um i, I did see him at a couple more shows as well um i think i saw him at a waw show um and i saw him at a hammerlock the only time i ever attended a hammerlock wrestling show um, I saw him at a Hammerlock show also, um, and um, and I worked with him. Maybe I did. I did one show with him, but there's a story behind this show. But I'm just trying to think of if I did any shows where he actually wrestled. I don't think I did. So I did the FWA show with him, where he was brought in as a surprise. Um, so oh, it all links together. Okay, so I'm going to try not to. I'm going to try and be as brief as possible with this story, but it's a good one. So. Jake the Snake had a uh, 20-foot wrestling ring, um, and his ring at this tour, he owed people money, and the ring basically got taken away, slash stolen. Um, and I don't know, Martin, if you know the story about um, the John Farrer GWF yeah, show famous, yeah. in Blackburn. Mm. Yeah, so the ring didn't turn up. So the story is Steve Linsky had nicked jake roberts ring or knew the person who nicked jake roberts ring and john farrer wanted a 20-foot ring so john farrer uh, so jake had for his wwf tour he had this 20-foot ring made specifically for the tour because anyone who knows the uk especially in those days the rings were just rinky dink tiny just mm -hmm. terrible rings as well like floppy ropes 
talking like uh you know sometimes you see the videos of like world class and memphis where the ropes are just like hanging you know it's kind of like that so anyway you got this 20 foot ring made for this tour and at the end of the tour he owed someone money i don't know i i I do know the full story but just to paraphrase he got this uh he owed someone money they took the ring away from him and then um and then basically steve linsky said he would provide the ring for john farrah for his show which was jake the snake robert's ring um but then there's there's many different variations of the story, but basically Jake Roberts was working the show that Steve Linsky was going to be bringing his the ring that Linsky <laughs> stole off of Jake was going to the show where Jake Roberts was. I don't think Linsky actually stole the ring; it was someone else. But he was brokering it all. Anyone knows Linsky knows he's always a middleman, right? And um, and anyway, the ring didn't turn up and the show didn't happen. And ironically, I was going to the show as a fan, um, and uh, and I went from London or South End to Blackburn to watch this show that didn't happen. Um, so, uh, so yeah. Um, and Linsky, so the show I did, it was at FWA, it was at Brent Town Hall. Um, and I was putting up the ring. So I used to do the ring crew for FWA before I refereed. So I was putting up the ring. First of all, Jake Roberts walked in and Jake Roberts, he looks at me. So this is the first time I've ever spoken to Jake Roberts in my life. <laughs> And he looks at me, he goes, hey, kid, what's your favorite color of water? And I what? kind of looked at him, dumbfounded, <laughs> and he's just like, mine's brown. And he lifts up his water bottle, which is clearly full of whiskey. And I was like, okay, hi, pleased to meet you, Jake. <laughs> and anyway, Jake's there, and Jake's going to be some kind of surprise at the show. And I think it's because someone's flight got canceled or someone didn't turn up. I don't know, but like, he's going to be this surprise at this show. And anyway, then Steve Linsky turns up, right? Who's supposed to be refereeing on the show, right? And then Jake and Linsky have this pull apart, like, well, not a pull apart. I know Jake got in a pull apart with Alex Shane, but then Jake and Linsky have this argument and Jake basically says he's not working if Linsky works the show. Mm. So basically, um, Linsky then packs up his stuff and he's about to go home. And then Jake and Alex have some kind of argument. The next thing you know, Linsky stays and they send Jake home. So um so I never actually got to do the show with him. But that's the closest I got to working with him was that um, you know, Brent Town Hall show. And it was all linked to that missing ring and him not wanting to be on the same show as Linsky and obviously being in no state to perform at the time. Um, because it wasn't until he came back to England that he got his life together. Uh, got back to America, sorry, yeah. got his life together. Um, but he also ruined several lives in England whilst he was over here as well. So um, it, it wasn't a happy story him being over here. No. It was kind of almost like enabling. Yeah, like I said, there was a you know there were quite a number of stories about him in the press. But uh, Andrew, that is an infamous story about this um, this ring not turning up for this show in Blackburn, where all uh, the fans had turned up, and it was like people like Trent Acid and a bunch of US indie guys had been flown <laughs> over, and it was just a complete disaster. <laughs> but yeah, and that's uh, probably what coined the term Brit rest. But um, <laughs> moving on, moving on to the. Uh, we uh, we get a cameo from uh, New Jack now, and um, Blanche uh, says that he, uh, he he didn't expect to bond with him, but he did. And uh, New Jack reveals that you know he was once a bounty hunter and had been the the cause of four justifiable homicides. And you know um, he makes no secret about being a, a violent person, but you know did show some charm, you know, with the news that he you know failed to win an acting role, um, which. 
I'm sure we're set up for this documentary, you know, with New Jack, but there is the hilarious image of Barry, who must be the the whitest guy, <laughs> with with New Jack riding round LA going on the way to this uh, on the way to this audition where um you know the casting agents are basically saying that you know perhaps he could have been um, um the next Denzel man. or yeah, something like that. It was uh, yeah. it could be Denzel's friend, the sidekick, <laughs> which is another famous line from the uh, documentary. But obviously, you know, New Jack uh, sadly passed away. Um, you know, earlier this month, and just um, just some of your thoughts on New Jack uh, and Andrew, because I suppose he was sort of like you know his peak was um, sort of like before you became a fan of wrestling, wasn't it? Yeah, New New, new Jack man, like. I, I get that there are people who aren't that fond of him, and and I mean that from a like from I, I guess from that people weren't big fans of how I guess aggressive he was or or violent he was in the ring. But uh, one one thing that I always enjoyed about New Jack was like you it, dude was clearly like himself, like through like through and through like what you what you get is what you see and or what you see is what you get. And like um, you know, just, just I, I know me and you kind of sort of dove into it a little bit, like we mentioned on the last podcast, like when he was in uh, Smoky Mountain, and he was a part of the gangsters, and you know, sort of enduring uh, that you know r- racial tension from the crowd and, and firing it right back at him, and and and, 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 New, and New Jack, he he, he said his uh, his fair share of uh, foul things, but I mean, he t- he t- he took it in as well, and like him just staying who he was, and you know, l- learning more, learning about more about his story and some of the childhood traumas he had growing up. Um, you know, I, I didn't know New Jack personally, so I can't, you know, sit here and speak from a standpoint of like, like I, I, I knew him personally throughout the years and like saw the growth. But like, you know, uh, I, I think he was a, a, a individual that will never be forgotten. And, you know, wrestling will always remember, uh, remember New Jack. Yeah, I think he's certainly one of those characters that will be uh, remembered for years and years, uh, Andy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's yeah. I I, I remember when he passed. I, I posted on my Twitter about um, my memories of him, and I, I said something along the lines of, you know, he, and I used the Denzel's best friend uh, yeah. line. <laughs> that always stuck with me as well. You know, he, I don't see him being Denzel, but he could be Denzel's best friend. Um, but um, yeah, I to me, it's not necessarily something that might hold up. You know, his style of professional wrestling, um, but it was a party and it was fun. It was something which was so different to anything. And for me, I was like just this testosterone filled teenager. And to see, uh, to see that, you know, the natural born killers playing and, you know, throughout the match, which was unheard of at the time. um, And, you know, somehow that slipped through, you know, in the early ECW VHS releases, um, you know, all the copyrighted music managed to slip through the net. And it wasn't until the later releases they started to put this rubbish music, which uh, ironically was done by Len Davies, who did RQW. If you look at those uh, DVDs, uh, Spectrum Multimedia. Um, But um, but, uh, yeah, like that music playing in the background, just that in-your-face style, it was just, it was all me as a teenager, you know. It, it, It represented... As Vincent McMahon would say, ruthless aggression. You know, mm-hmm. it was uh, it was something. It was just something which is so different. You know, and uh, and one time only, um, one of the very first shows I promoted, I actually had a match where we we played New Jack's music in the background throughout the match. We did a street fight and had his had his music <laughs> playing in the background. Um, so that shows you how how much of an influence it had on me. But um, but yeah, I think the the key to New Jack as well, like, and anyone. Who, who's kind of around the business will tell you is like he was a good worker as well as being um you know 
because uh, a lot of people assume people who work that style of matches aren't good workers, but he really was. And a lot of it comes down to his charisma as well. And it's something you can't teach. And I feel like in this documentary, you really got to see, and he was only, and the fact he was only in this documentary for a tiny amount of time, yet made mm. such a huge impression mm. on a documentary that features so many huge stars in the world of professional wrestling, tells you all you need to know about New Jack. Yeah, it was funny because uh, I was just laughing because I had immediately thought about, I, I wish I could remember what wrestler I saw tweet this, but they were doing like a seminar or they were present at a seminar that New Jack was hosting and he went out and he like showed that he could like, you know, he could do the technical style of wrestling. He could do the, you know, the mat based wrestling. And I, I guess one of the students had asked him, he was like, well, he, and, no, he told, he told the students, he was like, and y'all better not ever tell nobody that you just saw me do that. Cause he was like, if, if people found out I could do that, they're going to want to see me come to their show and do that shit. And I'm not doing it. And like and one of the funnier, I mean, it's not funny for the other person involved, but like hearing New Jack tell the story of him wanting to get back at Vic Grimes on the dark side of the ring show when he when they were on top of the scaffold and he was talking about how Vic Grimes was like, Jack, Jack, I can't feel my legs. And he was like, you ain't gonna need them. And then he did the whole bombs away like that, like, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, 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 I'm, I'm pretty sure that's not funny for for Vic Grimes in the slightest, but like, I, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. When I heard New Jack tell that story, like, I, I could, I couldn't help but laugh. And I, I'm pretty sure that that's uh, a work, you know, like, the, right. the, <laughs> you know, like I think that's a, that's I think that's a thing with New Jack. You know, I think, uh, I think him and Vic Grimes are probably great friends. You know, mm. um, but. Um, but you can never tell. You can never tell if he's, yeah, that's true or if he's working, <laughs> and that's part and that's part of his charm because everything he says. So even if you look at that dark side of the ring special they did on him, everything he says is almost with a wink and a nudge, you know. Mm. And uh, and I think that that's that's also one of the reasons why he gets away with so much stuff because he's so charming, you know. And I think he could charm his way, much like Paul Heyman could talk his way out of many situations. New Jack could charm his way out of many situations. Yeah, definitely, definitely uh, cut from the same cloth him and uh, Paul Heyman in terms of uh, having the gift of the gab. But um, we're back here with uh, Terry Funk, and um, you know this is um, his alleged retirement show here, WrestleFest '97, <laughs> and um, you know we see Funk uh, going round Amarillo, sort of like promoting the show. You know he's obviously got his uh, deals with the car dealership, and he's, he's wanting to make sure they're looked after at the show, which is quite funny, and. Um, I don't think, would we ever see a show like this today? I mean, if you've got wrestlers from like WCW, WWF, ECW, just all over, and apparently they've just, you know, according to um, on the Conrad Thompson show with Bruce Pritchard, you know, it was just Brett and those guys saying, oh, I want to go and work um, this retirement show and just getting uh, permission for it. I don't quite think we'd see a show like this coming together today, would we, Andy? No, I don't think there's anyone who is that job secure that they feel like, they could just be like, right, I'm going to go and do this. Because at the end of the day, Bret Hart was going to work that show regardless. So, you know, <laughs> Vince isn't going to say no to Bret Hart. But who's Vince going to say no to? Like, who's Vince going to, you know, who works mm. for WWE right now who could realistically do whatever they wanted? You know, and I think that that is what it comes down to, you know, ultimately. Um, but um, I could see something like this happening from every single promotion apart from, WWE. Mm-hmm. I could definitely see, for example, you're almost kind of seeing it already with AEW, uh, Impact, New Japan. You kind of see that. Um, but I could see it, everyone apart from WWE being involved, um, yeah. for sure. And I could also see that perhaps that might force WWE's hand. Mm-hmm. You know, if there was a if there was a big enough cause, I could see that might force their hand to make them be like, 
hey, yeah, we're cool, you know. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I, I think that it's uh, it's weird, isn't it, how stuff has changed um, yeah. so dramatically. Um, and I feel that you know, it's uh, yeah, it's, it's it is unlikely that we'd see something like that to this day, but. I think that's more WWE wanting the monopoly over everything. And I, I, it's not that I don't think they did it back then, but I just feel like, I don't know, it's, it's almost like there's less breadcrumbs to be fighting over. Mm. WWE wants them all. Um, maybe, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, I think it'd be very unlikely to see a scenario like that again. Yeah, WWE, they're like real weird, but like, not trying to act like other places or, or some places don't exist. Like even when um, like they, they you, have you got you guys have heard of the most wanted treasures thing that they're doing on A and E, right? Yeah, yeah. So so they went to the high spots. Uh, you guys know what high spots Superstore is, right? Down in yeah, North yeah. Carolina, with my, yeah. They they went down there and they filmed uh Sergeant Slaughter, and uh they they went they even bought some stuff from the high spots Superstore. And like they were in there filming, like getting saw getting a whole bunch of clips. They cut everything involving Hasbats out. I'm talking oh about they gosh. cut everything. Like and, and I was like, and, and they they were like in there, like literally. But I think they bought an item or two from there, and you know they like you know they had everything on camera, and they they like completely swept everything that was involving Hasbats out of that documentary. And I'm like, like they, they they've always been like so so weird with that type of stuff it never made sense but like going back to the documentary like i, I was gonna ask y'all well, was i the only one that thought that uh that the finish to that uh the bret hart and terry funk match was cool like how terry funk hit the back suplex on him and then both of their shoulders are pinned to the mat and then it looked like brett was gonna get pinned and then he just threw his shoulder up and terry's shoulders were still on the mat and then he ended up i was like i thought that was cool as hell i i feel that um that's just an example of bret hart being the best wrestler of all time and like being able to wrestle he made wrestling real i don't think anyone else could buy that you know, it, it takes a lot of work to be able to work a match like that. And it's such a thoughtful finish for a match, you know, that um, Terry Funk was outfoxed rather than, you mm. know, pathetic old man, you know. And don't forget, Bret Hart was WWF champion at the time as well. So, like, that's what made it even more, you know, it is in what's supposed to be his last match. It made it even more special. Um, but... Um, but please, whatever you do, please don't skip over Dennis Stamp because uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just coming to him now because obviously he is one of the best and most fondly remembered characters from this documentary. And you know, and apparently behind the scenes, Terry Funk had offered him up as an example of someone who who never quite made it to a uh, to a Barry Blowstein. And um, you know, obviously he's here, he's upset that he's not on the retirement show. We see him trampoline him with some weights and his speedos and. Um, Obviously, the infamous line where he says he's always ready for his next match and he's always waiting for the phone to ring despite his last match being in 1991 and this was 97 at the time. And um, obviously, he has the big thing with Terry Funk where he says, you know, <coughs> he can ref the match between him and Brett on the show. Um, then he's sadly no longer with us, but obviously, you know, one of the most uh, best-remembered characters from this documentary, Andy. Yeah, and I feel like he's someone who, if, again, if this documentary was a few years later, he would have. Been, I know he got a little bit of a run. He teamed with Grado, didn't he, at some some Indian America? No, but like, he? I know oh, I missed that. Yeah, but I know that if if this documentary is a few years later, he would have got the cult, a proper cult following. Um, mm. But I will say, when I was at university, Dennis Stamp was my uh, backdrop on my laptop. That's a true story, <laughs> um, and and very and it's to see just him in the in the maroon shirt stood outside with his arms raised essentially and i think it was a part where he was saying um you know i 
I did ask if I could be a referee, but I guess they can't have heard that. Um, but uh, I did use the Dennis Stamp line. Um, very recently, I did a podcast with some of the trainees. They got like a couple of the trainees at a wrestling school. They interview um, other trainees coming through the system. And I guess it's kind of like their way of, the trainees communicating with each other it's quite an interesting listen um and they asked to interview me but they wanted to interview me more about you know breaking into the business and whatever um and they asked me about refereeing uh, and you know they asked me when was the last match i refereed and i literally threw the beyond the mat you know the last match i refereed was in 2015 but it's getting longer and longer between matches you know i never know when my next match is going to be they just no sold it because they hadn't got a clue. Oh, and yeah. I was just like, and again, and that was another one of those times when I was internally laughing at myself and I was internally absolutely disgusted at the, the products, the Portal School of Wrestling. Uh, but <laughs> I, I did, I did, I pulled them up on it only, but again, I let time pass and I only pulled up on it, pulled them up on it a couple of weeks ago. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, absolutely great scene. Um, and, there's so much of it as well that I always, anyone who's had any kind of, uh, you know, domestic at home can relate to the situation that Dennis Stamps in, whereby he's about to get his own way, but he doesn't want to cave straight away. So, mm. you know, he's he's saying, he's essentially going, no, 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 to Terry Funk. And Terry Funk's like, I want you to referee me and Brett. And he just wants to say, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but like his manly pride is in the way. And he's like, you know, I've made other plans. And uh, Terry Funk's like, you know, referee me and Brett, referee me and Brett. And of course, then you get that epic scene of Terry Funk just walking away and tripping on the rock as he's uh, <laughs> not the wrestler of the rock, a rock, um, mm-hmm. you know, tripping on his way, <laughs> on his way away. Uh, and then obviously the next scene, Dennis Stamp going, you know, like saying, I've changed my plans. You know, I asked my wife and and she said, what do you think? And I said, it's a main event. It's a main event. I'd sooner be in the main event than breathe. You know, and we use that line as well a lot. I'd sooner be in the main event than breathe. You know, and uh, and then, like, obviously, he's like, uh, you know, I made my, ch- I made my, I had to change my plans. It cost me $100. And Terry Funk's like, I was going to pay you 50 you know. And he's like, you're going to double pay me? Like, what a scene. What a scene. But that is, uh, yeah, that's what documentaries like this are all about, the unsung heroes mm. um, and, and lines you can lift to make yourself laugh in later years. Um, Andrew, I don't know also if you noticed that um, this is, uh, we also get an appearance here from, I guess, from last month's show, John Lister as him and a friend uh, are telling them that they've travelled all the way from the UK for this show. And I think it's a line that always gets uh, misquoted because I think his friend was from Scotland, so he says, Oh, we're from England. Um, I mean, Britain. But then it sounds like he's saying something like we're from England in Britain or something like that. And so, yeah, it's interesting that John's there for this uh, for this show. And then we get to the sort of like final part beyond the mat. Obviously, journeying uh, journey into uh, January '99. Uh, Mick Foley dropping the WF Championship to the Rock, and we see all the behind the scenes here. You know. Mick Foley with his family and then obviously going through the match with The Rock and we even see Rock um, talking um, to Blaustein on camera about his character and, and things like that. And um, obviously watching this at the time, you know, you didn't have all the education and stuff about sort of like unprotected chair shots to the head and that, but watching this now, I mean, 
I think in in the Rumble, they were supposed to use a lot more of uh, Mick Foley's wife and his kids, you know, being ringside. But then when you actually watch it on the pay-per-view now, I think they're shown once. But obviously we get, you know, all the behind-scenes stuff here, you know, with them crying and having to rush backstage. And, and I know uh, even looking back at Mick Foley's book, he said that there's only supposed to be five chair shots. But, you know, rock oh boy. going and going and going. And um, I have seen people, you know, and he just he has been a bit critical of Rock saying, you know, these were some of the most horrific chair shots he's ever had in his whole life because obviously his hands were behind his back and he had no protection whatsoever. And I have seen people say that, you know, because Foley kept coming towards Rock, you know, Rock just assumed that was him feeding him for more chair shots. But, I mean, Andrew, this is this must be like what... Knowing what we know now about unprotected chair shots and, you know, yeah. stuff like that, this must be one of the most brutal sort of, like, matches of that time period. Yeah, the, 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 that was... The, watching this with 2021 as is, is not a fun watch or or an enjoyable watch at all, especially seeing, um, you know, Mick Foley's wife and, and, and his kids, you know, how they reacted to it and like, even seeing them um, uh, backstage after the match when she was just uh, sitting back in the trainer's room and telling them, like, like you, you can't keep doing this. Like this is like this needs to stop at some point. Like referring to him, well, I, I either referring to him wrestling as a whole or him, you know, doing these, you know, type of matches where he's going to consistently be uh, having chair shots to the head and stuff like that. So yeah, that, that definitely is not a um, that, that definitely is not a, a an enjoyable watch. And I, I've I don't I think when I was uh, when of course when I was younger, I thought you know chair shots to the head was like oh yeah that's the you know, the, I guess, quote unquote, cool thing. But like looking at it now and like what I know and what we know uh, about concussions and, you know, CTE and stuff like that, that is, uh, that, that, that's not good at all. Yeah, because when, especially when they're showing backstage and um, it zooms in on Foley's eyes, I mean, he's definitely concussed in, you know, yeah. and especially when he's trying to reassure his kids and he's just got blood gushing down his head and everything like that. But, um, Andy, what are your thoughts on sort of like like an outer day? You know, Mick Foley has been critical of The Rock in the past, saying that, you know, he hit him too many times and things like that. But, you know, and he did say also that, you know, Rock was one of the few people who didn't come and see how he was after the show. Um, but then there are people who say, you know, Rock thought he was feeding him for more shots. What are your thoughts on sort of like the match and sort of like where Mick Foley and The Rock stand on it these days? Well, at the time, Foley did say it was just a boo-boo. So maybe The Rock heard that and yeah. <laughs> was like, it's okay. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, I, you know, you watch it and you think he's feeding for more chair shots. You know, the, the, the gimmick is, like, it's over when the, it's essentially you've got the, the recording saying, I quit, I quit, I quit, right? Mm. Um, and that's obviously the story going into the next night or whatever that he's... Um, you know that he's he hasn't really quit so there's obviously the cue from the sound guy is obviously a a thing i know he's got to put the microphone in his face but foley did keep feeding up for the chair shots and i would probably say that and, and i don't i'm not saying it's an excuse but the rock probably got carried away do you know what i mean yeah. like because you know you can imagine the adrenaline which is going through your body you know at a moment like this, and you've got Foley who's getting more fired up coming into the chair shots, and I think the whole thing just led to that nasty situation. Um, obviously, you'd like to have thought that Rock came to check on him. Um, they obviously made up afterwards, but it's, uh, yeah, I think it was just one of those, I don't think anyone's really to blame per se, and I do think that obviously you, in those in 1999 eyes, it's like, 
we weren't aware of you know the the impact of unprotected chair shots um which is something which we are more aware of now so i think that it's easy to it's easy for us to sit back with hindsight and say that was one of the most stupid spots in the history of wrestling but at the time we didn't know any better mm. um and i also i remember from my fan eyes at the time it was the coolest thing ever you know um but what i will say is watching that documentary did shape my mentality about um chair shots and and wrestling um because i remember so for example i ran a show i can't remember it was a it was an ipw show i was booking but i remember it was martin stone was supposed to be taking a chair shot um so the idea was he he kept like so he was walking back through the curtain and some hands in the chair came flying through the side of the curtain right and i said to him whatever you do put your hands up all right because I was very aware of the severity of chair shots, but it's only because of Beyond the Mat. And I'll always remember this. Martin didn't put his hands up because Martin was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, I'm going to be a hard wrestler. I'm not going to put my hands up. He didn't put his hands up and cut his head wide open. And that was it for him. And then like uh, we had medics at the show because these were like, again, revolutionary for its time. We had paramedics at the shows. And they advised that he didn't wrestle, so we didn't have him wrestle later on. He was planned, he was scheduled to wrestle. I want to say Leroy Kincaid later on that night, but he didn't wrestle as a as a result of that. Um, but you know, I, it, that gives you an example of the impact that um, that had on me in terms of I went as far as instructing someone make sure you put your hands up, right? Um, but the, the mentality of a wrestler at that time still was like, I'm going to be a wrestler. I'm going to take it properly on my head, you know. Mm. It doesn't hurt. It just stings for a little bit. It'll be okay, you know. Like I'll get over it, you know. Right. And I think that that mentality has absolutely, definitely changed. Um, obviously, films like Concussion um, has done a lot to bring it to the forefront. Obviously, the work of Chris Nowinski. Um, and I think, like I say, looking at it with the benefit of hindsight, you probably would have done stuff very differently. Um, but you know, again, I don't. There was too many chair shots, mm. but at the time you can see their logic saying like it's worth it for the moment. So, could you call the chair shots unnecessary at the time? Mm. Maybe you can say there's too many, but if there wasn't that many, would it have still lived with us to this day? You know. Yeah. Um, so that that's a, you know devil's advocate. That's a story you're telling. Like I even still remember the uh the one that really comes to mind often for me when I think about like some of the I guess more uh brutal chair shots out there. I was like the one that the rock gave to Kim Shanrock. And I remember Shanrock saying uh in an interview, he was like he told the rock to 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 do it the way he did. Like the rock hit him like at the point of the forehead. And they was like it, it was like the that, that that part of the chair, like where it cuts between the seat and the and 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 the top part of it, like he hit Ken, like I'm talking about, like directly in his forehead, mm. and drilled him. And Ken said in an interview, he was just like, "Yeah, I told him, I told him to do that." And like just that mentality back then, or even uh, like another one uh, is the one I think when when JBL hit Eddie Guerrero over the head at the, I think it was the Judgment Day show, and Eddie like he split Eddie wide, and like that was like, like it, like just looking back at some of these chair shots, man, like these were these were brutal, but like you know. I, I, I hate I hate using this phrase, uh, but like you know, it was just the time that it was. Like I don't I don't think really people were really 
Uh, the, 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 informa- the information isn't as available, uh, wasn't as available as it is right now about concussions and, you know, head trauma and, and things of the sort. Yeah, definitely. Because obviously, you know, we see uh, Barry going to Mick's house and he's, you know, Mick watches the footage of his wife and kids getting upset at ringside. And, you know, he's obviously saying how guilty he feels. And he said that, you know, he feels like he's not such a great dad anymore. And perhaps he wouldn't mind being known as the guy who pulls the sock out of his pants um, after all. And and then that's sort of like the conclusion of the documentary. You know, they sort of like wrap it up saying that, you know, Mike Modest and Tony Jones never heard back from the WEF. Roland School was still open. Um, Terry Funk walked back into wrestling ring just three months later after his retirement. Um, Jake had spent time in prison over failure to pay the right amount of child support. Um, Darren Drozdoff went on to become Droz instead of Puke, and obviously the uh, really sad story of him, um, you know, ending up in a wheelchair. And um, while ECW were working on acquiring the rights to air a, a new weekly show, and um, one cameo that I didn't, uh, that I did um, fail to mention just before we get our final thoughts on that out of here was um, Coco Beware as a, a brief cameo in this film. And I kind of feel like they uh, did wrong by Coco. I know they're trying to tell a story and everything, but, you know, he's in there still wrestling and things like that. And sort of like Barry says uh, over the top of it, you know, people still trying to hold on to the dream when it's long gone. And I thought, thought that was a bit harsh on old Coco Beware, Andy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's, I was actually going to use that as an example of, you know, Jake the, Jake the Snake feeling he was hard done, by, hard done by. I think I would be more upset if I was Coco because there was almost no redeeming feature to Coco Beware's cameo. You know, it was almost like, here's this guy trying to cling on to, trying to cling on to the past out of touch of reality and then almost even the scene, like he says something along the lines of, you know, sometimes I just wish I could go home and take the feathers off Frankie, you know, however it is he, he terms it, you know, and I feel like, um, yeah, he, he was really put there as almost a, a deadbeat, you know, whereas Jake was put there as a deadbeat, but he was put there as, you know, a sympathetic deadbeat because he had the story and the context, which Coco never had. So, yeah, I, and, and, and I feel as well, like, obviously, he, Coco was led into saying what he said, but I feel as well, like, you know, you look at Coco at the time in that thing, and he just looked like he did in WWE TV. And essentially what he was doing was providing the people of Omaha, Nebraska, the the say, the authentic Coco Beware product. Mm. You know, could you say the same about Jake? Do you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so like, um, so yeah, I do feel he was a little bit hard done by. And uh, Andrew, um, any sort of like final thoughts um, or any sort of like final thoughts on the documentary? So I, I I did really enjoy this uh this documentary. It was my first time like seeing it in full length outside of the you know seeing various clips from it. Um, I I, I did like how they really uh, spotlighted the 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 Jake Jake Robertson story and you know kind of you know just re- re- really bringing attention to what he went through in life and you know what like seeing now like what what, what he obviously overcame. Uh, I think the the Mick Foley part about you know seeing his mentality about you know taking the chair shots and stuff. Like, I think that was. Uh, informative and I, I, I of course the Dennis Stan part was a you know a, 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 some good humor in there I, I think it was a overall it was a solid you know documentary from uh from start to finish yeah definitely and obviously Andy you talked about um how influential it was for you and I think it obviously influenced what the the documentaries that we see today you know you mentioned Dark Side of the Ring and things like that and certainly WWE being a lot more open because obviously this was before you know obviously the internet was a thing but it was for you know everyone had it in the house and things like that so it was a real eye-opening piece and um yeah just some just i just think 
that we wouldn't get sort of like the documentaries we get nowadays if it wasn't for the likes of Wrestling Shadows and uh, Beyond the Mat, I don't think. Yeah, and I feel that... Um, so I remember when it was being marketed, and I think it even says it on the, uh, the, the VHS box cover, it's like Vince McMahon tries to choke Beyond the Mat. Um, mm. So Vince obviously wasn't very happy with it, but you know what Vince does very well is when he's not happy with something, he tries to create his own version of it. Mm. So, you know... Um, and and I think that that could well be you know seen as a direct door opener to the WWE um, documentaries. And also, I think that um, what he didn't, what Vince didn't like about the documentary is um, the link was made between independent wrestlers, down and out wrestlers, and WWF superstars. Yeah, I think that Vince likes to think about the WWE universe. Everyone says like people who are in WWE are in a bubble. But literally, WWE have termed it a bubble themselves, a WWE universe. And I'd like to think, I, th- I kind of feel, feel that in many ways, in Vince's mind, P- Vince feels that once someone leaves the WWE universe, pop that out, they, their character no longer exists. And I think mm-hmm. that what Beyond the Mat did was drag it back up and say, hang on a minute, look, Jake the Snake is outside this bubble and he's fallen so far. And I don't think Vince wanted that association, you know, um, you see, you know, people always say that WWE is like a version of Disney, um, but obviously with Disney, the characters are, are animated. And you don't have to worry what happens to them later, you know. Um, and with with WWE, we're we're using real life human beings, and I I think that that's something that they like to stray away from. Um, and being able to create their own documentaries puts a control back in their hands and it lets them paint their own narrative and it lets them make paint their own picture and makes you remember history the way they want you to remember it um so i looked at that documentary and like obviously when you watch the um when you see the you know vince mcmahon tries to choke beyond the mat i think it's going to be a big hit piece on wwe Mm. but Mm. i watch a documentary and i'm like wow a, it justifies liking professional wrestling because this is this documentary was aimed at not necessarily just wrestling fans. It was tr- aimed to try and help people understand the different types of characters in professional wrestling. And for me, I think it justifies people's love of professional wrestling. So to me, that can only be a good thing for WWE. It also sets WWE up as the standard bearer and the thing that young professional wrestlers are aspiring to get to. And it puts WWE up on a pedestal and it shows how many worlds apart WWE is from everything else. So I look at that and I look at that as a positive and say, and I, and I was always like, wow, it makes WWE look great. And I just could never understand why from WWE side, there was so much negativity. Um, so, you know, aside from them not having control over the final cut, I guess, um, and perhaps some monetary reasons as well. Because I know yeah, Bruce I Pritchard Bruce, always Bruce talks Pritchard, about Bruce Pritchard says that the the way it was portrayed to them that you know it wasn't going to be a cinematic release and things like that. But I also kick back at that and say, what did you think they were just going to film all this stuff and put it in a vault? You know, it was obviously going to yeah, and, release at some point. And 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 I would suggest that WWE wouldn't have got involved with something which you know if I go to WWE with my little fan cam. And I say, can I make a documentary? WWE are going to tell me to do one, you know, but when, you know, but, you know, as you went through at the beginning, there were the big hitters involved in that documentary. And, you know, so to me, I think WWE thought it may have just been a fluff piece, maybe, or maybe they didn't realize that 
other people would be mentioned in the documentary, that there's a world outside the WWE universe. Um, I don't know. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's certainly interesting, the different reactions coming from it. But to me, like, like I say, like it, it shaped so much of my wrestling fandom. Um, it made me hunt out more stuff from the likes of Terry Funk. Um, you know, it got me super hyped behind ECW. It made me want to watch the United States Indians because like that, mm. it, you know, like we, we referenced at the start, you know, with um, the Roland Alexander, the Jim Wars show. It looked cool, right? To me as a, as a teenager, it looked cool. And I wanted to be, uh, you know, I wanted to see as much of this stuff as possible. It opened my eyes to an entire new world. Yeah, definitely. And it definitely um, still stands up to this day. But um, yeah, I suppose that just wraps up Beyond the Mat. Um, Andrew, any sort of like last things before we get out of here? Uh, I, I, I did want to ask uh, Andy a question before we before, before we um, before we wrap up. Of course, thank you for joining us, Andy. I appreciate you, you know, taking the time to do this with us. Uh, Martin, you're a great host as always. Uh, but Andy, I, I wanted to ask you, like, you know, uh, coming up in a few weeks, you know, it'll, it'll have been, you know, four years since uh, Speaking Out happened. And I was like, as you are moving towards, you know, bringing people back in attendance and like trying to establish an environment that kind of shares the, the the sort of negative aura that was uncovered about some parts of the wrestling scene, like um, your, your kind of your assessment over the past year, like the the, the impact that Speaking Out had on the UK, uh, the UK slash European wrestling scene. And like just speaking on Rare Pro, like what, what can be done to sort of like, I guess, I guess, regain the trust of some of the fans that have kind of soured uh, on the UK wrestling scene over the past year? Um, I think it's, it's a, that's a very loaded last question because it's uh, there's uh, there's so many different aspects to it. Um, but I feel like um, again, it opens a lot of people's eyes. Um, mm. There's a lot of things, uh, you know. I've spoken time and time again to uh, blue in the face about um, you know some of the things that I feel were wrong about the wrestling industry in terms of um, the the drinking culture, the after party culture, the merchandise table culture. Um, you know, and I and I don't think there's anything wrong with wrestlers meeting fans, but you know, to the extent where the that you know fans feel they're friends with the wrestlers, and you know, th there's lines which are crossed which shouldn't be crossed, and you know, and and I've always tried to not um not uh not breed that kind of environment with Rev Pro, and I've always mm. made my intentions perfectly clear about that. Um, it's something that I was never vocal of before. Like I'd look at it and I'd see the progresses, Fight Club Pros and, and that kind of, um, and ICWs and, the, you know, the kind of um, the culture that was bred there with the after parties and the stories you'd hear. And I'd always, um, and, and I'd want to say stuff publicly about it, but to me, it just looks like look, from, from anyone's perspective, and there's people so loyal to these brands. If I sit there and I say, look, this promotion shouldn't be having this after party and the fans shouldn't be getting drunk with the wrestlers. What does it look like? It looks like I'm a jealous promoter, you know, mm. because my fans don't have that connection with the promotion and the wrestlers and whatever have you, you know? Um, but really I was, would be pointing out facts, you know? Um, and I feel that this has shone a light on that a lot. And I hope that that, element of the industry is cleaned up for sure um from our perspective it's all about transparency um we're not always going to make the decisions that you want as fans but we will always make measured considered decisions um which are based upon all the facts we have available to us 
yeah, we uh, we will deal with everything transparently. I think that's all, that's all we can do. Um, and I think that in time, um, I know there's, you know there was a lot of backlash over a lot of stuff over the summer, um, but I think in time, um, you know, um, history will be kind to Rev Pro and us, um, and you know, and people will. You know, to me, I always say the only way you can really uh, you can really do is by doing, you know, and which sounds right. like ridiculous, you know, but like for a lot of people, it's about saying, you know, about saying the right things. But it's all well and good to say, you know, well, I'm not going to run professional wrestling shows until everything is cleaned up. But, you know, if you can't you can't run professional wrestling shows because it's in the middle of the pandemic or you can't run professional wrestling shows because you don't have the funds to do so, you know, so it's really easy to talk a talk, but it's about walking the walk and making sure that you practice what you preach. And I know that, um, you know, with the benefit of history, people will be able to look back and say, you know, what, what I've said will happen has happened. And like I say, I don't expect everyone to agree with a hundred percent of my decisions. Um, but I, I hope that people will understand that every decision I make is a measured decision based upon the information I have in front of me based upon, um, you know, um, my opinions you know mm. and that's all right that's all i can do um we've teamed up with equity in terms of providing that level of transparency and um again if anyone wants to call us on anything in terms of people who work for us um then you know they can go through equity and if they you know they can sign up become members of equity and they can have a union representation and we've opened the doors to them because we've got nothing to hide um and genuinely feel that you know if performers want start having a minimum expectation of the way they're treated um then uh then hopefully that will naturally start to weed out um some of the problem promoters and promotions around the around the country um but you know i feel like certainly people are going to be a lot more careful about where they spend their money they're going to be a lot more cautious about where they spend their money and they've got every right to do so because ultimately the only way that um promoters are going to learn and the only way that promotions are going to learn the only way wrestlers are going to learn is if fans talk with their wallets you know and i'm not talking about going on the internet and saying nasty things i'm talking about you know if you really have that strong feelings about something then don't go to it don't support that product you know i think that's the most important thing um i think a lot of stuff got clouded with people having lots of different agendas um and that's always been a problem with british wrestling nothing's changed there um but i feel that at least the light has been shone on it and now at the very least everyone's going to be a lot more cautious and everyone's not going to be as uh, as blind to everything you know um and i think that if it makes people start asking questions and those questions lead to change, then that's a positive. Um, all I've ever, ever in the wrestling industry, all I've ever wanted is to change it for the better. And believe me, and it's not an excuse because it's stuff needs to keep getting better and keep evolving. But the wrestling industry now is in such, and it seems ridiculous even saying this, but the wrestling industry now is in such a better state um, backstage than it was when I got into it it's insane the changes that have happened. It's not enough changes because obviously there's still a lot of bad stuff happens. Um, but my part in all of this is to try and help keep, you know, keep moving stuff forward and putting ideas forward and trying to evolve and, you know, and just stay on top of all this stuff. And I think that's, 
that's the key for everything really you know it's a, like i say it's a very loaded question um you mm. know to answer in a short space of time but i think that you know i think that ticks a, a lot of boxes i don't know if there's any follow-up or anything but you know i like i say like it's it's about transparency no, yeah, I appreciate you asking that. You. It's like proof's going to be in the pudding, isn't it? So it's like you say, actions speak louder than words. It's okay having stuff on your website and everything, but it's going to come down to, you know, after shows have started running and things like that. I, I agree with you there. But um, I suppose just wrapping up, um, sort of like people, how can they check out Red Pro, sort of like the shows you've been doing, um, sort of like the no fan shows, and then your tour starting this summer and you're, you're running dates all the way through the year? Yeah, so revolutionprowrestling.com is a place to start. On that, you've got links to everything. So rpwondemand.com um, is our um, is our video on demand service, which has our entire back catalogue, including our empty arena shows. Um, uh, but yeah, our shows dating back, uh, predating Rev Pro as well. Um, and it's got lots of stuff from other promotions on there as well. And it's currently having the Southside Wrestling video library added to it as well with new shows kind of being added every week. Um, so that's rpwondemand.com. And for merchandise, it's shoprevpro.com. Um, for official New Japan Pro Wrestling and Rev Pro merchandise, at shoprevpro.com. Um, and then the links to all our socials are on the website. But it's Rev Pro UK on, um, on Twitter. Rev Pro on YouTube um, and Revolution Pro Wrestling on Facebook. But like I say, it's all at revolutionprowrestling.com. You can find the links to all of that, including all of our shows. And there's direct links to directly buy tickets to all of our shows on, on the website. Um, but yeah, we're starting back. July 4th is the first one back. Um, all being well with the, the government and their ever-changing um, <laughs> so, you know, rules and scenarios. But um, what we will say is, um, as we've been throughout this whole thing, I think that the key for me has always been about um, transparency and honesty. Um, you know, anyone who's asked for a refund for shows which had to be rescheduled pre-pandemic were refunded. Um, anyone who asked for refunds after they were rescheduled for a second, third, fourth time, they were refunded. Um, no questions asked. Um, and um, and obviously, if we have to postpone or move any shows, um, then, you know, your, your money's safe. There's a COVID secure guarantee, a COVID flex flexibility guarantee. We'll refund it or we'll give you tickets for the, the next show. Um, so, there's literally, you know, we're doing everything we can to, to you know, um, to, to let people have confidence to buy the tickets, knowing that they will either get to see the event or they'll get their money back. And um, really, it's been quite, um, I don't know, I, I feel quite, um, I felt when we first put tickets on sale, I felt quite overwhelmed um, and grateful um, at the support that we've had um, from people who have put their faith in the product and especially people who've held their tickets you know, for over a year now in hope of seeing some pro wrestling. Um, but I, I genuinely believe that when we get back, you know, like I, I miss fans. I think we've done okay with the, the empty fans, the no arena, the no fans, empty arena shows. Um, you know, I think we've done a, as good a job as we can with a limited budget in terms of um, trying to convey a sense of atmosphere. And I enjoy those shows. I really do. Um, but I feel that, um, you know, it's going to be a completely different ball game when fans come back. And I don't even think that as fans, you know, I talk when I say as fans, we, I'm talking about myself included. I don't think we even remember how good it feels to be in that, um, you know, in that wrestling crowd. And I think that it's going to be very quick. All those memories are going to come flooding back, um, you know, because, um, at the end of the day, we make movies. No, <laughs> 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 um, but but you know, I, I just I just think that it's just I, I just 
can't wait to put uh, another WWE one. You know, we put smiles on people's faces, but you know, it's a cliche, but it's true. You know, and I, I just can't wait. You know, a big part of that is obviously people meeting up with their friends um, and having that sense of camaraderie. But you know, again, like anyone who's been at any of those special moments, like, you know, when Michael Oku defeated Pac and when he won the British J cup and the cruiserweight championship and people were jumping up and down and hugging each other, you know, when we'll beat Zach finally, you know, again, just people jumping up and down with joy, you know, and there's not many things in this life that can, uh, can evoke that kind of emotion from grown adults. And, um, and I think wrestling is very, very special. And I think sometimes we forget that. And sometimes it's easy to harp on the negativity. And I, I get it. I really do. Um, but, you know, I feel that when we get back to it, um, I think people are going to, you know, remember just what a great time pro wrestling is. And, you know, just because there are a few bad eggs within this industry. It's the same as every single business, you know, every single industry in the world, you know, there's, there's, but like, don't let those, that minority ruin it for the majority, you know? And I feel that, um, you know, I, I, I just, I believe so strongly in the power of professional wrestling from the bottom up. And I'm not talking about just rev pro shows. I'm talking about from the shows that happen in your local community center, you know, I believe, you know, some people look at those shows and say, what's even the point? No one remembers them after tomorrow. You know, it's uh, such basic shows. But to me, like you get a young family go to that show and that may make their week. That may make their month. That may make their year. You know, their experiences, they don't forget. I remember when I was younger going to these rubbish British wrestling shows. When I'm talking about younger, like really younger, you know, rubbish, rubbish British wrestling shows. But my family could never afford to go to WWE, you know, and this was as close as we could get to it. And I'd go and I'd scream and I'd shout and I'd make so much noise. I'd go to school the next day and have no voice, you know, and those moments I look back on, look back on fondly. I look back at my pictures with Dunk the Clown, you know, and I, I remember that fondly, you know, and I remember the experience of, you know, my dad, you know, me and my dad never really um, got to do stuff together. And I remember that experience of my dad, taking me to a wrestling show because it's something that father and son can do together mm. and how much that means to me to this day with my dad no longer with us being able to look back at you know the time he took me to see marty Janetti, you know and stuff like that that's the power of professional wrestling and that's what i can't wait to start bringing back to people i mean it, it seems so you know when when the world's going on you know when the world you know when um uh, when you know covid's ravaged around the world and it, there seems there's so much more important things than professional wrestling but professional wrestling is important you know it seems trivial to some but like it's so important to so many people and i i just again i just can't wait to get back doing it and i just can't wait to to get that reaction that instant reaction because there's no form it is theater but there's no form of theatre like it because there's, you know, if you go and watch a musical, you wait till the end of a dance number or a song before you clap your hands and, you know, make noise. If you go to the theatre and it's a, it's a dramatic performance, you wait until the, the end of the, the show before you clap your hands and make noise. But professional wrestling, you get that instant reaction and there's just nothing quite like it. And I just can't wait to remind people of that fact, um, you know, this coming July. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, definitely. It's going to be interesting to see so many shows coming back, and not just in wrestling, but all the stuff that's coming back this summer. Like you say, if the, if this roadmap <coughs> does end up happening, excuse me, you know, that we get, it will be interesting to see, you know, just Britain back up open for the summer. But, um, Andrew, um, have you been doing any interviews recently? Um, any, any stuff from your YouTube channel to plug? Yeah, uh, of course, everybody can go check out all my written work over at postwrestling.com. Um, and it, I just uh, put up an interview this this past, yeah, this week with um, independent wrestler Watts, who is based out of uh, Southern California. And uh, next week, I'm going to have a uh, one one interview that I think I'll be that'll be very special. It's uh, a wrestler who was in WWE and New Japan within the past, I would say, several years or so. So I think a lot of people are going to enjoy that. And uh, of course, I got more interviews coming to the channel that I have on um, you know, on the on the back end. So I'm looking forward to putting those out. And of course, all roads lead to postwrestling.com. Uh, me and Andrew will be back at the same time next month. And uh, check out the other stuff on the site. Um, I know John Way have got um, got an Academy Award-winning film director, uh, Brian Fogel, on this Friday to talk mm. about his new documentary, The Dissident. Obviously, he won the Academy Award for Icarus, which is a cracking documentary, which I believe is still on Netflix. So yeah, check that out. And then I think Colt Cabana was on the other day as well. So lots of interesting stuff to check out on the site. And uh, yeah. Andy, Quillen, obviously, huge, huge thanks for coming on here and uh, talking about uh, Beyond the Mat, obviously. You know, your, uh, your fandom really shone through in what you were saying about it. So, yeah, really appreciate you taking the time out of, your, you know, setting this tour up and obviously the wrestling school you're running and uh, talking to me and Andrew today. No problem. Um, I'd be willing to do this forever, forever, <laughs> forever. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, we'll be back to making movies next month. So thanks everyone for listening and uh, we'll catch you next time.